Hello, everybody. Good day. Oh, I should check to make sure the mic's working. It is. Hello. I'm just getting a couple things set up here, if you'll bear with me a moment. Um, busy day. Very busy day. Uh, but thank you for coming by. Another episode of Merged Worlds, my Dungeons & Dragons story stream podcast thing. I uh, spent almost all day writing. Almost the entire day. And uh, my hands are killing me. <laughs> to be honest, my hands are... My fingers are purple and dented. I've been writing all day long. So, hopefully, you all will enjoy what I'm going to throw down for you all today. So, again, this is all part of stuff that I've been working on for a very long time. So, hopefully so. I will do just a very brief synopsis, as always, of what we handled in the last episode. Um, and then we'll see where we go from there. Alright, so... Um, as always, thank you for coming by. Mute this phone now. Pour myself a beverage. All day while I've been writing, I've had to... Mr. Midnight has decided to be clingy again today. He's been walking back and forth and back and forth. And he keeps sitting down on my book. I can't write with a kitty butt on there. But uh, I did get a lot written. So uh, I believe we should get to it all today. I think. I hope so. Jim just got home. Excellent. Mr. Jim and Miss Smashley. Appreciate you hanging out. Hello, Muse Maze. So you posted a little bit earlier there as well. AC, is it fixed? Not sure yet. It's completely frozen over. A guy replaced the part. We're going to leave it to thaw all night long and try it in the morning and see if it works. If not, then it'll be way more expensive and even more money I don't have. So I guess we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. Um, so, in last week's episode... Um, certain mysterious man spoke to our heroes uh, with tales and portents of the future, if you will. Um, letting them know uh, kind of basically what was going to be the primary, one of the, one of the primary storylines moving forward. Now, I did want to stress that things that were learned last episode, and I'm being purposely vague, if somebody didn't watch those, I and is watching this episode, I really recommend watching that one first. <laughs> Some things will be revealed uh, potentially later today, but uh, uh, there will be many stories, many campaigns, many things going on throughout that time period, uh, or the, the future of story-wise. There'll be different adventures and campaigns and such. But that behind the behind the way that overarching storyline is what's going to connect a lot of it together, which has kind of been what has been going on in the original story, right? Originally, it was all about the artifact weapons and the you know, god stones and Vasanya stones and all that kind of stuff. There's still always that overarching storyline that connected many of the things together. Uh, except for the last one, which was the shark thing, and that was just for fun. <laughs> but, uh, yes. So, in this adventure, we're going to be moving forward. And we ended last adventure with the heroes... Uh, talking with their spouses and advising that they had decided to go ahead and let the children accompany Deacon back to his home, the Kingdom of Firemoon, which was part of the original plan before the attack of the undead on Serenity. Uh, the plan was for them to go with him to help celebrate the first birthday of his younger brother, Alexander. Uh, none of them had been there before. For almost all of them, it was the first time outside of 
literally uh, Serenity at all. Within reason, as babies, they traveled to the Darstopian games. We know Petal was there and such. But as a whole, since they're old enough to know what was going on, none of them have left. So they were very much looking forward to it. And with the attack, they pretty much had given up on that. So they were very shocked and pleasantly surprised when their parents said, Yeah, your guys are still good to go. And the only one we're sending with you is Flynn. Because Flynn is who was going to be going with you originally. And uh, Flynn was advised, Hey, you know what? Let them have their own space. Let them do their thing. Be there if they need anything. You know? Basically, you're their wallet if they need more money. But you be there if they need anything. But just you know, enjoy yourself and let them have their own space. They've been through some stuff lately. So. And that's kind of where we're going to start our story today. Uh, and that is with the children heading to the Kingdom of Fire Moon. So, <laughs> road trip indeed, Miss Ashley. Road trip indeed. So, let's get on into it then. Try wet me whistle one last time. Delicious. Okay, so. Everybody dies. I'm just kidding. Okay, so. The children arrive in the kingdom of Firemen via the realm gate. You remember there are the realm gates that are throughout the world. That if you have a key and know the name of another gate, you can basically open up a portal to it. And as a point of clarification, any portal can go to any portal if you know the name of the one you're going to. So it's not like two of them are specifically linked or anything like that. That's not the case. So they arrive in the Kingdom of Fire Moon as planned. So the only people in that group is... Flynn, who's a Knight of Serenity, right? We know Flynn's there, the youngest of the Marshall. And then the six children. That is Seraph, Deacon, Ran, Maeve, Petal, and Artis. And uh, because this had been something that had been planned for a while, there's already a lot of stuff in place for this trip. Special events and things that they're going to participate in, things they're going to see. Um, setting aside the attack on Serenity... All this stuff was already set up well ahead of time for them. Uh, so they arrive as planned. When they get there, they are greeted by Taboric and Smalzius. So Taboric and Smalzius are the ones that are meeting them there. It is approximately a two-day trip, a day and a half, from the portal, which is on the very edge of Fire Moon's territory, to the actual keep proper, which is the, the primary city of the Kingdom of Fire Moon. Um, so, Tabork and Smallsius, you know, meet them. They're excited to see everyone there. They're very happy to have Deacon home because by this point, Mercy's already communicated with Rafe. They know what's happened. They know about the attack. They know about uh, Deacon fighting, getting injured, being healed, all that kind of stuff. Uh, so, of course, they're very happy to have them home. You know, again, while they're considered barons or lords, if you will. Fire Moon, uh, most of them carry the, the term ambassador of anything else because uh, they do a lot of traveling for Rafe. They, uh, you know, they've been there since he was born. You know, Rafe is their his best friend and their king. They look up to him, and you know, his son being in danger, not cool, man, not cool at all. 
So they're happy to have him home. It's going to take about two days to get back. Um, Taboric is, and, and Rafe has already made arrangements that they will be staying in a, an inn halfway there uh, in a town called Dumeris. And Dumeris is a medium-sized town, but it has an inn there that's quite popular. Uh, the food is not only exceptionally known to be good, uh, but it's owned by a human bard who frequently you know, entertains there. Um, Deacon, and, you know, that's where they normally stay on the way back any time he travels to or from Serenity. It's usually it's just him and some ambassadors. On. And I should mention that with the with Taboric and with Smalzius, there are like 20 soldiers as well, you know. Normally there's not quite this many, but with everything going on and the other children there as well, Rafe's added a little bit of security. But again, that was always intended to be that way. That's not necessarily because of what happened in Serenity. You know, this is him protecting his son, but now also being responsible for a princess for the first time, right? He's used to other people, trusting other people with his kid. As well as, you know, Seraph, the daughter of the elf, <laughs> Dandy, Darcy, these are all his friends and allies. He definitely wants to make sure they're taken care of. So, they travel, and they're making their way, and most of the stuff they go through is farmland. You'll find little villages and such. It's, it's a lot like Serenity in its overall makeup, except Serenity is much more hilly, uh, whereas Firemoon is very, very flat. Uh, very flat land. Um, but it's really good farmland. It was very easy to do that, and that's one of the things that helped that grow, but we're going to cover that in a minute. Uh, but as they're traveling through, you know, they see other people on the road, they see sometimes other soldiers passing through, and everyone recognizes, you know, Taboric and Smalzius, and they're all going to recognize Deacon as well. They probably don't have a clue who anybody else is, but the fact that they're traveling with the prince and the two ambassadors itself is a pretty big deal. So they get a lot of waves and greetings and such, and there's occasionally where Taboric and uh, uh, Smalzius will stop and chat with another group of guards. Hey, how are things going? Any problems out here? No, everything's been fine, so on and so forth. Thank you for checking. You know, they stop for just a couple minutes. Deacon's used to this, so a lot of times, they're just kind of just traveling along. And while they're traveling through, um, they're telling stories. They're kind of telling a little bit of the history of Fire Moon. And many of you have heard some of this already, but I'm going to touch upon a couple things, because while the children have a, an overall historical view of it, they're also getting it from their parents' point. I'm going to kind of talk about it from some of the early stuff. Um, so, one of the first things that they ask is for Flynn... Or not Flynn, I'm sorry. Well, Flynn's there, and they meet with Flynn, of course. And while they're traveling, the first thing they do is ask Flynn, hey, what happened in Serenity? Because they've got the overall gist from Rafe, but even Rafe doesn't have all the details yet. And that was why it was still important to send Flynn. Uh, number one, that was what was originally supposed to happen, and they definitely didn't want to mess and try to change anything. But Flynn would now be able to give a very much more detailed you know, account than probably the children would. You know, you know children are. You know, everybody sees it differently, and everybody different point of view. Flynn would come more with facts. Um... So he tells the story and what all he knows. You know, he says, this is what I was involved in. This is what I heard happened in this area. And he talks about the point where uh, Deacon and Seraph, you know, fought with the other children uh, alongside uh, to, to help fight the undead and to save other people. Um, and hearing this, you know, both Taboric and Smallsius are very proud of that, right? Because they look at him like a nephew or a son of their own kind of thing. Um, 
so you know they even make comments like ah excellent you know it's like it's like it's like we suck that that happened but you know excellent he'll be a great king one day that kind of thing look at him already jumping in there kind of stuff so they kind of talk about the history of fire moon and i'm going to give a few details here that are going to matter more today than ever before uh, because this stuff wasn't really important we talked about fire moon and that's kind of how this how the kingdom of fire moon is set up so the keep itself sits on an oddly shaped rocky mountain surrounded by a very lush valley so imagine that imagine just a very almost narrow mountain coming up out of the ground right and it's probably jagged at the top but it's been almost the, the keep has been built into the top of it there's kind of a winding road that comes to the bottom and the city is inside this valley and then up and out beyond that at that point but um when 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 Rafe was given this keep, because again it was gifted to him by Zoltan. Hey, there's a name we like. It was gifted it by Zoltan. Um, it was already there. To this day, he has uh, none of them have any idea who built the keep, who lived there, or why. Um, when they arrived, you know, when it was given to them by this point, Taboric and them were uh, already allies of Rafe. And, uh, well, Nilat was given another one very much like it down in the southern section of the continent that they lived on. Rafe was given one that was a little bit more north and north central. And so they were they, they were built kind of in the same way, and the mountains even kind of matched, which was odd, you know, in itself. So they get in there and they they move in and Zoltan's like, hey, here's your new house. And they pop in and it already has like some sparse furniture in it. Not a lot. Everything that is in there looks very, very old. But the place doesn't look ransacked or anything like that when they're explaining their first time in there. You know, the chairs aren't all flipped over and trash in places and such. It's like somebody built it, put some stuff in there and then left. It's dusty. There's no old food. You know, but we also don't find anything that would show up to be personal belongings. There's no things like dishes. You know, there's no weapons and armor and things of that nature there. But they do find some shelves, tables, chairs, things of that nature, beds, dressers, things like would be overall furniture kind of stuff uh, in many of the rooms. And then in many of the rooms, they would just be completely empty. Uh, it's almost like someone started to decorate the house or started to move in and then stopped. Um, so, at first, you know, it was just them that kind of living there by himself. It was Rafe. Rohan, who, if you'll remember, is the uh, uh, Knight of the Light. He's a Cleric of the Light, I'm sorry. Cleric of the Light, um, who's a dwarf. And then there was Taboric, who at the time, still had two arms, <laughs> was a Minotaur. Um, Smallsius, Thickaway, and there was a half-elven mage that was part of their group as well. Who, I, I'm going to be honest, I've searched everywhere. I can't figure find his name for nothing. I have to reach out and see if anybody that was in part of that original story remembers. But it was a half-elven mage, and the half-elven mage actually died in the final fight against Nilat. Um, he was there for a little while. Uh, but he was the last to join, and then he passed away. For no specific reason, I didn't create him to be. That's just how it was great for the story at the time, you know. Uh, but it was just them living there themselves. And they were there for a couple of months, and then um, a man and a woman arrived. Um, and uh, the boy's name was uh, Mikkel. No, sorry, Mikhail. Sorry, Mikhail and Michelle. And they were brother and sister. Um, and 
they arrived and they were looking for work. They were, you know, they're from a town where parents had passed away. They didn't really have much of their own, some of their own, and they were kind of poked. You know, they heard word that, that coming this direction would be a good thing to do. No problem, Mystique. Appreciate you hanging in. <laughs> right, I'm just doing some kind of. Uh, the kids just arrived in the Kingdom of Firemoon, and they're learning a little bit about uh, the history of the origins of Firemoon. So, um, they were hired because, you know, these were guys who were used to being out in, in the adventures and such like that. Not real homey types. So they didn't have, they, they lived on basic food, what they could hunt and find. Uh, but Michelle was an excellent cook, and uh, Mikhail was really, really uh, good at taking care of stuff. He ended up becoming the head steward. Um, and not long after they arrived, more and more people started showing up, all with the same tale. They heard that there was a benevolent lord who lived in this thing, who could offer them land and protection and things of that nature. So as they showed up, Rafe was like, okay, and he kind of much like Serenity began, but by accident, he's like, okay, well, okay, you can have this farmland, you pay me this much and you can stay there. And I'm like, wow, that's low price. And you'll protect us? He's like, well, sure, yeah, why not? And they're like, okay, that's awesome. And so more and more people came, you know, and uh, the city grew very, very quickly. Um, almost immediately, Rafe and Michelle hit it off. Uh, it was one of those undercover things where, you know, they, you could tell they both liked each other and everybody knew it, but they were all like shy around each other. And it took a while for it to actually you know, come out uh, in that way. Um, but throughout this whole time, of course, he grew closer to Michelle. Uh, the kingdom grew, wealth grew, and occasionally they would go out on adventures and do things to help protect this or save the world or fight the dragon, whatever the case may be. Um, eventually, of course, uh, as this is going on, Rafe's allies became uh, lords or barons, like I talked about earlier, much the same way the Knights of Serenity uh, existed. That's what Taboric and them were to, to Rafe. Um, and Rafe also had the Knights of Firemoon, which was him just the name of his soldiers you know, overall. Um, so, you know, he had many of them, and they continued to grow as quickly as the, as the kingdom did, because it gets bigger, you need more people to protect it, right? So, uh, that was going on, everything was going well, and let's see. Of course, all that came to a rush and sudden end the day that the kingdom was attacked by the Baron. Of course, the Baron, they would learn much later on, was actually Nylat, Firemoon Rafe's brother, but he attacked and, of course, uh, kidnapped Michelle and took her away. And then there became a big race around the world trying to catch him and save her and save the world from him. So uh, they don't go into a lot of that detail. That's the more common known stuff, but the origins and beginnings of Firemoon, not quite as much. So I decided to touch on a little bit of that today. But the city has outgrown the valley at this point. The city itself, I would say, is probably the same size as Serenity, if not a little bigger. Probably a little bigger. Although, Serenity has grown much more in land. So, outside of Serenity City, there's all the other towns that they've kind of scooped up to become part of it. Uh, Rafe wasn't like that. There was just tons of land around for him that no one lived in. And as the, the city grew growing up, little things popped up here and there, but he never really tried to you know, take in other villages himself. It's happened occasionally, um, but it's it's never been something he sought to do by any means. So, um, 
So since the merge, the kingdom, of course, has still continued to grow, uh, and for many of the same reasons. They, they say, oh, here's a place where people are treated fairly and you're given protection. That's going to attract a lot of people from a lot of different worlds when you don't know what's going on, you're in a new world, and dangerous stuff is out there. Uh, the Knights of Fire Moon have grown, again, quite exponentially at this point, um, and probably rival Paxawal. Paxawal and Firemoon probably have the largest militaries of any of them. Mercy's has a good has a good side one in Serenity, uh, but it doesn't touch either of theirs. And the only real difference between Paxawal and Firemoon is Firemoon's doesn't have a navy. There's no ocean there, uh, whereas whereas Paxawal has that as well. But manpower wise, they're about the same. Um. So. Right. So, as they travel for a good chunk of the day, and as it's starting to get a little bit later, they reach the town of Damaris, uh, and they stay at the Dove's Song Inn. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, the uh, bard's name is Maria, but very often she's known as Dove. That's her nickname. And so they get to stay there, and they get to kind of hang out. Um, there's a small celebration that night. You can imagine they've already rented rooms, right? They already know this. People know that the prince and the group are coming through, and with special guests, so... The inn would have had, you know, extra food up there. People who lived in the town would probably want to show up to see these people. You know, it's like, ooh, there's the ambassador. It's like celebrities coming through town, right? Uh, but now they're bringing celebrities. People are going to hear, ooh, this is the, the princess of another kingdom we've heard about for years but have never been to. Or, or you know, and then, you know, the head elven cleric who's, you know, known in the lands for being just a really high powerful cleric has sent her son here and he looks weird. Let's go look at him. You know, it's just one of those things where people would be interested in what would be the equivalent of celebrities in that kind of society. Um so when they arrive there, there's a bit of celebration, you know, there's dancing and you know people eating and such and uh, the kids of course don't get drunk by any means, but they'll have a touch of wine now and again because that's how life works then. So they're just kind of hanging out, enjoying the food, and some music. Uh, Maria Dove uh, sings a song, "Tale of Two Brothers," which is probably one of the more famous uh, ballads in the Kingdom of Firemoon, uh, and it's always been Deacon's favorite. It's just a, basically a story of Rafe and Nilat through metaphor. You know what I mean? It's it's not saying them by name, but and the story's not exactly the same, but it's metaphor for that, and everybody knows that. Um, while this is going on, uh, and this is you know people are bringing food and drinks, uh, the the serving girls, you know, a couple of bar you know, barmaids, uh, pay a little bit of extra attention to Deacon and Sarah. Uh, Deacon because he's the prince, right? Like I mean, that's just kind of how that works. Some people are always going to try to gain station in that way, you know. And while he may be young now, he won't be young forever, you know. Um, and for Sarah, I mean, he is the oldest of everyone there, and he looks older than he is. Like I said, he's almost 16, but he could easily pass for 18. He's physically grown. Like, he's he's big, he's height, he's at six feet, he's got, he's muscular because of all the workout and training he does with his father and such, so uh, physical size, he's probably about the size he's going to be most of his life, unless he decides to get jacked for some reason. And I would think with the elven patronage part of his blood, that he'll never be quite what I'd say, like, huge jacked kind of thing. Um, he always have a touch of thinness because of that, uh, but the thinness he has is still very muscular. Um, so while this is happening, Deacon laughs it off, right? Because the girls, uh, you know, artists and Maeve, they, they pointed out, like, oh, hey, 
Servant girls uh, seem to be uh, throwing a little flirt your way. And Deacon laughs it off. And he's like, oh, yeah, it, it happens. You know, it's one of those things. And uh, kind of hints to artists like, hey, give it time. <laughs> give it time. If you haven't seen it yet, you're going to notice it soon. And I'm like, Jasmine, yeah. He goes, that's what it is. Um, Seraph, it just makes him uncomfortable. Like, he's just, you know, as it is, he's the one who's sitting there the most. And he's just quietly listening. You know, he doesn't talk as much as everyone else. When spoken to, he'll reply. He's not rude or anything like that. If, you know, someone asks him something about himself or, hey, tell me about the time this happened, he'll tell the story and he'll be quite friendly and uh, slightly uh, uh, bardic in the way that he tells his stories. Um, but, you know, with him, he, he's relative, he's with the long white hair and the, the very the, the smooth skin all that kind of stuff. He looks pretty attractive as a person. So, um, but he's he's not very comfortable about the whole romantic stuff. He doesn't understand any of that. Doesn't interest him. It's not his jam right now. Um, but the night's fun. There's lots of singing, and uh, he really, really enjoys bard stuff. That's him. It's one thing that Seraph has always enjoyed. He loves hearing. He has no desire to do it himself. He's not a singer. He's never really tried. I'll say it's probably one of the few skills he doesn't have. He doesn't have the best singing voice, nor would he want to. But he loves hearing other people sing or hearing poetry and things of that nature. So while this is going on, people are chatting and hanging out. Uh, at one table, uh, partway through the night, a conversation is struck up between one of the children and one of the adults. Um, and that is Taboric and Maeve. Um, Taboric of course, one of the only real men, one, one of the very few Minotaurs living in the kingdom of Firemoon. And Maeve, there's not a whole lot of Minotaurs in Serenity. I'm sure there's going to be one or two everywhere, but not many. So she doesn't get to, for three out of four months, she doesn't have a lot of time to talk to her own kind. Um, and Tabork, I'm sure, senses this and, uh, and uses this as an opportunity to strike up a conversation with the young girl. Um, and he starts, you know, asking questions like, ah, oh, so you're going for a cleric. Uh, that's where you feel pulled, so on and so forth. That's excellent. He goes, it's, you know, the devotion to the gods is always a great thing, you know, because from when it comes to religious stuff, Minotaurs are, are really high on the religious chart, though, uh, for as a race, very related, but usually for only a certain specific gods. Um, there's exceptions to every rule, of course, but majority-wise. Um... And so they have a they, they kind of start checking out. He's asking her questions like, you know, "What made you first think that? What, what made you? What, what, when did you feel your pull?" And, and she's telling the story, but he he senses hesitation from her when she's talking. She's explaining this, and when I was young, this happened, and you know, I, I was asking a lot of questions, and so I was sent to Serenity instead, where they thought I might find a better place, and I felt myself drawn towards Zorn, the God of Truth, uh, very easily, and. You know, Artemis had already been my friend by that point, and her, and her, even though she's a little bit older than Artis, she's always idolized Artis a little bit. They're like sisters, and so, you know, getting to do that with her was awesome. You know, um, but she, but she, she admits to him that she sometimes feels a bit guilty. He asks her why that is, and she says, "Well, you know, again, she feels drawn and devoted to Zorn, the god of truth. Uh, you know, feels called to him and such. But no matter what she tries, no matter what she does." She, she finds herself always questioning things, even the tenets of their faith. And that's, that's one of the things that got her to Serenity to begin with. You know, the, the Minotaur clergy are like, hey, you know, she really likes God. She feels that pull. But in a very short period of time, they're like, she questions everything about every God 
that we normally worship. We feel that she might be better off, you know, speaking with gods that we don't normally deal with, because she clearly has a pull, but not kind of where we where we chill. And uh, this is the same kind of thing. She goes that she's never really grown out of that, if you will. Even even with Zorns, there's there's questions and things. Um, to Bork laughs when he hears this, and she's a little taken back, and he's like, well, that's good then. He goes, uh, he says, that's good. Questioning is good. Seeking the truth. That's what, that's what you do. He goes, that's nothing wrong with that. Said he, and then he goes into one of those really classic father-daughter kind of moments when he's like, uh, reminds her of a young minotaur he met once, many years ago. Um, that Much like Tabork, this minotaur was also a bit of an outcast from the normal minotaur society. Um, Instead of living there, he found himself that he, he, was, he was the type of person who looked at the world differently, surrounded himself with people from many different races and such. Um, where traditionally, Minotaurs saw weaknesses of the other races and constantly felt superior. Instead, this, this Minotaur, this man, was very different. Instead, he learned from them, trusted them. And together, they helped change the world. By the time you get to this story, Mavis caught on that he's obviously talking about her father. Uh, because, you know, he spent some time with, with that as well, with the Darsh. Um, kind of ends the story by saying, you know, it's good that she questions. You can think of no better wor- uh, way of serving the Lord of Truth than by spending her life always looking for it. You know? Um, and then, you know, she kind of feels a little bit better about it. She feels a little bit better about the situation. She's kind of pumped up her a little bit there. Said, yeah, it's okay what you're doing. That's a good thing. You know, that's what it's supposed to be. And then, you know, and he says, whichever way her journey takes her, he wishes her well and has absolute faith that she'll eventually find the truth she's looking for. So, evening celebration, things go on. Night comes to an end. Everyone ends up going to sleep. Up relatively early the next morning. They'd like to meet, uh, make it to the Kingdom of Firemoon by about midday. Um... So that, you know, they've got a little bit of time before, you know, they got a right to bed kind of thing. So they travel on. Now, they, much as before, travel's the same. The closer they get to the city, the more civilization, you see more towns and homes and stuff together. So they get stopped a little more often by people or waves and so on. Uh, but as they're making their way through, uh, it goes well. Now, this day, the day that they're going to arrive, is the day before the celebration officially begins. It's supposed to go on just for a few days, and it's to celebrate the, again, first birthday of his younger brother, Alexander. So Alexander is like a good decade younger. Um, uh, at first, they did not plan on having a second child, and it just kind of happened, but they're like, cool, nothing wrong with that. Um... Much like the festival of Serenity that just got ruined, people from all over the kingdom have come. Um, unlike Serenity, it's not a lot of people from outside the kingdom have come. This is this is specifically a, a Fire Moon thing of that nature. And so while there are of course going to be people who come through to try to sell their wares and things, there's not quite as many international folks sliding through, if you will. That is so sweet. Well, I'm glad you like that. <laughs> Um, but there's a ton of stuff to see and do while they're there. And they're going to do a lot of it. And we're going to talk about that. Uh, the book said the actual birthday is the first day of celebration. Then they want, they timed it well so they could get there you know, right beforehand. Um, so they, as they get to the city proper, they're making their way through the seats. Um, you know, this is all exciting to the rest of the kids. They've never been here, right? And as Deacon, you can imagine, you know, if you've ever taken someone... 
to a somewhere you're really like that they've never been. That feeling of getting to show it off. And over there's this thing, and then that store's awesome. They've got great sandwiches. And, you know, that place there, oh, if you want a donut, that's the place. You, I mean, it's one of those things where he gets to kind of show off his home for the first time. He spent years living in serenity, but they've never been here. So he gets to play the part of host, and he likes that. So he's pointing out things as they go through, and again, even before they reach the city, they can see the keep on the top of the mountain. It's it's you kind of come up, you know, and there's a hill, uh, like you said, it's a bit, of, a bit of a valley, not perfectly round or anything, but it's a bit of a valley, and then the rock comes up and the keep's on it. And then they come over and it's just all city around there. So they go through the streets, and there's already decorations up, and just like any other festival, there's people already there selling wares and trying to you know make some money ahead of time, right? Um, you know, if they can... If you bring a wagon full of stuff to sell and you can sell it by halfway through, you get to leave early, that's success. Or better yet, halfway through you're done selling, you can enjoy the rest of the festival without having to man your stall or your booth or your table, whatever you've got going on. As someone who's done that, it's awesome when you sell out all your stuff early and you can just spend the rest of the time enjoying something. Um, so, you know, they make it their way through the city itself, getting lots of decorations, banners and such. And... Um, but they make their way through. Lots of cheering and waving and things of that nature. And then they travel up the road to get to the keep. As I mentioned, the road actually goes around the keep and such. It's been widened out over years. It's actually quite thin when they first got there way back in the day. Uh, but there has been some changes to that and a railing put in to make it a little bit safer. As the, the This is the one spot where uh, Serenity has a bonus. So, you know... Serenity Keep is built up on that hill, but then comes down it and spreads into the base of the hill at this point. It's kind of in the city. You can't build any more castle up there. It already takes up the whole top of this thing. So for them to expand in room, they had to expand at the bottom of the keep. and So down at the bottom of the mountain, and that's what's, that's what's happened. Uh, there's a couple of things hollowed into the mountain places. You know, you could pull in if another cart's coming, so you've got room and things. But um, the castle itself is as big as it's ever going to be. They finally reach uh, reach the top. Both uh, Rafe and Michelle are waiting for them. Uh, both super excited to see Deacon back. It's been, you know, three months since they've seen him. He co- he goes to Serenity for three months, comes back for a month. So that's kind of his cycle for schooling. It's the same cycle that Maeve is on with going back and visiting her parents. Um, Michelle, of course, was worried, and as Rafe was well when they heard everything that had gone on, but uh, they're very happy to have them home. Uh, Alexander is sleeping at this point, and so there's a nanny with him, so they get to greet without the little boy. They'll get to meet him a little bit later. Um, Rafe, of course, uh, thanks Flynn for bringing his son home, because uh, you know, technically he's the elder there, right? This kind of thing. And then, of course, you know, greets the children warmly. I, he's met them all at least a couple times. You can imagine that Rafe would have come at least once or twice over the last eight years to Serenity to see something involving Deacon. You know what I mean? He's participating in this, or you know, he's just coming to support his son and see what he's learned. Or uh, There's going to be at least one point, if he's, if he's letting his kid learn at the Mage Tower, he's want to go see where he's learning. Remember, Rafe, not super a fan of mages, not against them, but he doesn't want a Mage Tower in Fire Moon. He's, he's still not approving it. But he has no problem with pedal. That's just obviously his son's mage. He's not anti-mage. His son's getting some magical training as well. They meet the children. They say, yeah, "I know you guys are tired and such, so um, I have some people here. They're going to uh, show you to your rooms, give you a chance to rest, freshen up and such, and then um, we'll meet up again in a little bit. This is a chance for them to spend a little bit of time with Deacon alone." 
Because, you know, they're going to want that too, right? Um, so they're taken to the rooms. Um, they're actually escorted uh, by Mikhail, uh, Michelle, who at this point himself uh, doesn't necessarily work there anymore. He has a, he has an inn that he owns and such, uh, but he's always up there helping out and such. He was he was head of the keep for a very long time till he passed it off and went into his own private sector, if you will. But he still pops up from time to time because he still considers. I mean, technically, Deacon's his nephew, right? That's, you know, yes, it's his sister's kid, so you know, there's that involved. So he's always involved with things like that. Um, uh, Mikhail was about six years older than Michelle, so he had a few years on her. Um, so at this point, he's married with kids of his own uh, somewhere else, in, you know, down in the, the city itself. They're taken to their rooms, um, and while that's going on, uh, Rafe. Uh, Deacon and his mom go, and they go, you know, gets to see his little brother and stuff. Hasn't seen him in a few months. Gets to tell his stories where um, the children are taking him. Flynn has an opportunity to talk to Rafe. Um, and they go somewhere private, and he tells him all the details and probably fills him in on more stuff than he would have said openly in front of Smallsius and. Um, to work, not because they can't be trusted, but they wouldn't. He doesn't want to throw it all in front of the kids either. How bad it actually was, you know. You could imagine they, they try to shelter the kids from that kind of thing as much as they can. Uh, but Rafe hears the story, and um, even though and he tells Flint, even though Serenity is very far away, Rafe isn't taking any chances right now. Expect uh, with the children here, whether or not his kid was the targeted one or it's one of the others, he's not playing around. Every single warrior knight in his uh, employ is currently patrolling. There's excess security well out outside the city that should, you know, should any force or even small group of any kind try to make its way towards the city, they'll know well ahead of time. Uh, that's uh, Tabork was overseeing a lot of that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, tons of extra security. Um, and says that he originally had planned to give the children run of the city. The city is known as a safe city of all of them. Maybe the exception of Serenity. It's, it's, it's known to be a very safe city. I'm sure there's a thieves' guild and such. There always is. But, you know, again, you don't you don't push things too far. Because then then the Lord just ends up coming down and thumping everybody to find the villains. So, you know, you, you make waves, but you don't flip the boat kind of thing when you're, when you're that kind of thing. So it's known as a relatively safe place. Deacon has always had the run of the town whenever he wanted, you know, with, within reason, I'm sure. Um, but he said that was originally, but with what's going on, he understands um, if Mercy would like the children to have extra bodyguards. He said he's already arranged for that, should that be their wish. Um, and, you know, he, he doesn't take it personally. He's like, hey, you want to, we understand you're worried about your kids. I was worried about mine. Yeah, I mean, but Flynn goes, no, no, that actually won't be necessary. Uh, Mercy and Artemis made it quite clear to me that the children are to have their freedom on this trip. Um, you know, they went through a lot as well. It was definitely a shock to them. They had to go through, and they were looking forward to this. Um, it's important to her that they, they get a chance to unwind and, and, and be themselves and have a space. Uh, so I'm here for support only. We're going to do it just like it was going to be done originally. Um, and he also makes a comment that, you know, uh, made it clear that everyone, she trusts Rafe as much as he trusts her. It's like, you trust me with Deacon three months of the year. I trust my kids with you. It's no worries. Which Rafe is always happy to hear. Um, Rafe does make a comment that he, he really hoped Deacon would not have to face battles so young. You know? When he sent him there to train, 
he never really assumed it would be, you know, you have to use these abilities at his young age, right? He's 11, almost 12 at this point. Um, but he does comment that he's glad that when that opportunity arose and he was forced into that situation, that he heard that he learned that his son had fought bravely and to protect not just innocent people, but the people he cared about, his friends and loved ones. So um, his instinct was to fight to protect. Uh, and so, you know, because Mercy at this point had kind of sent Flynn on this, like, is Rafe going to be coming back at some point? Or is, is, is a deacon? You know what I mean? Because he might be like, okay, listen, I'm not sending the kid back. Obviously, you know, that could happen. But uh, Rafe points out that he and Michelle had spoke on it in great length, um, as any decision he would always include her uh, what's best and Deacon would of course have uh, a word to say in his own but uh, they both of course were uh, had come to the conclusion that with what they'd heard what they learned that they're happy with the education and training that he's getting not only was he able to to fight in a situation like that exceptionally well uh, but the type of person he's coming they like that so uh, if Deacon wishes to return uh, he will have that freedom uh and, you know, looking, and him and Flynn both laugh when he's like, and I think we already know what answer he's going to pick. And Flynn's like, yeah, yeah, I understand. So the children's rooms are near each other. Basically, the three girls have a room that has a central common room. So they go into the common room, each room has a bedroom. Uh, Seraph and Ran are in the same kind of situation with the third room just being empty at this point. Deacon has his own room, which is near his brother. His mom's going to want him hanging out in those rooms as much as he can. You know, so he he won't be staying in the same rooms as Seraph and Ran, and most of the time when the when the, when everybody's hanging out and chilling between going out uh, out of the city or out into the city, uh, they hang out in the girls' common area more than anything else. Uh, so the children have time to unpack and put their stuff away. Deacon spends some time with his brother and his mother, um, and the girls are chatting and talking about what they all saw. Uh, they know there's going to be a big festival, there's going to be games, competitions, stuff like that. Um, artists Maeve and Petal have been invited to spend a very special day at the temple. It had already been previously arranged, and they're both, all three of them are really excited with that. Um, Petal is very excited because she gets the opportunity to meet, meet Fickaway Tricklebush, a legendary kender that in all of her time she's never had the chance to meet in person. Um, although Dandy has spoken of him fondly many, many times, she's never had the opportunity to meet him in person. Um, so eventually everybody comes in the girls' area. They, you know, so they're hanging out after everybody's unpacked and they've a chance to just rest a little bit, kind of talking about what's going to happen next. Uh, Deacon arrives after he's had some time, and he's like, hey, we're going to have food here in a little while, but first uh, I'm going to give everybody a tour of the castle. He's going to, again, much like that, wants to show off his house. I'm sure he's going to want to show Seraph his room. Kids always want to show other kids their room. I'm a grown man, and I love showing people this room. So that stuff never goes away. So, um, yes. So, they have the big tour. It goes around. Everybody's really cool. They get to see stuff. There is one room that Deacon's a little nervous to take them into. He's like, I'm going to take you into a room. We don't use this room anymore. Okay? But I've been given permission to show you. They're like, okay. I'm not really talking about it. It's not a, but I'm going to take you in there so you can see it. So they go into a room, and it's a really large room. It's very long and rectangular. And as soon as they go inside, they're all like, oh, what's that smell? Oh, there's a stink in here. Seraph could smell it outside, up the hallway, on their way there. But once they're inside, they're all like, 
oh, oh, that's horrible. What is that smell? Deacon's like, yeah, and they're like, it's a big empty room. There's nothing in, maybe a couple empty chairs or a table. But, you know, this would be a great room for storage, but there's nothing in here. He's like, come with me, I'll show you. I walk to the far end of the room, and I get to the end. The wall looks odd. Like, it's not completely wall. Like, it's not smooth, right? It seems lumpier. And Sarah figures it out before anyone else. But they get there, and they're up close, and they're like, and part of the wall's blackened, like it was on fire. And that seems to be where the smell is coming from. And they get close to it, and Deacon's like, okay, you can touch it if you want to, but I don't recommend it. And they're like, it's a wall. Why would we not want to touch it? He's like, I'm just telling you. Of course, they're all children. They're like, well, of course we're going to touch it then. And when they approach, they're approaching the wall, it's squishy. Almost like a, a balloon full of very thick pudding. It bends in just a little bit. It's got a texture to it. And it's Petal that first realizes that the wall is skin. And as soon as they realize that, they're all like, ugh! And they step back like, ugh! And then they realize that the smell is coming from the blackened section of the wall. It smells like burnt skin. The smell will never fade. Many many years ago, the early days of Rafe Firemoon, this was a room that he had set up as an actually indoor archery range, because Rafe was trying to learn to become an archer. And sometimes they'd come in here and they would test out magic items and things that they found. Well, Thickaway had found a wand. It was looked like it was everybody said it was a wand of magic missiles. It looked just like the wand of magic missile their friend had, the, uh, the half-elven mage. And so they came in here and... He's like, cool, I'm going to shoot at the target. And Rafe's like, yeah, go ahead. If you want to use up some of your, your wand, he's cool. So Thickaway goes, pow, and shoots two back to back. It was not a wand of magic missiles. It was a wand of wonder. And a wand of wonder in Dungeons & Dragons uh, is a wand that has multiple different effects. Uh, and you roll each time to see what happens. Um, we rolled. And the first one was stone to flesh and the second one was six foot by six foot fireball um so the wall immediately turned to skin and then the fireball hit it and there was a big rush to put it out um there was buckets and somebody had a jug of uh like unending water it's like you open it up and it's just all water and he's sitting there with this jug just streaming water on top of it the big fire and burnt skin and it was smoke and all that stuff uh, but the smell never, ever, ever went away. And so they don't use the room. They were going to use it for storage, but everything you put in here ended up smelling that way. So they normally just keep it all sealed off. This room's basically a big, empty, awesome-looking room that's useless in the middle of the keep. And that's true. That happened on the, on way back in the early days of Firemoon. Thickaway had a wand of wonder. So one of those cool little snippets from the early days I was excited to have an opportunity to show. So Deacon then takes them out. They go and they they go to the main dining room, the personal dining room of the king. And there's, of course, a huge table there. And they're all going to get to see, eat with the king and the queen. And several of the, of the all the ambassadors are here. The only one that's not here right now is Taborik, who is doing, checking on some last-minute security things now that he's back from his trip. So... They also had a chance to meet Alexander. I should mention that. Alexander's there as well when they first get there. Uh, they're joined by pretty much everybody except Tabork. But Smallsius, Rohan, and Thickaway is there. Um, so Petal, of course, super excited to meet Thickaway, goes up and begins talking to him. 
And Thickaway kind of comes off a little bit like a turd. He's like, oh, Petal. Hmm. Yes, yes, I've heard of you. I've heard stories. I am told you fancy yourself a wizard. Kender wizard. Never heard of such a thing. Odd. I don't know how I can feel about it. She's like, uh, yes, sir. I'm, I'm, I'm training to be, uh, you know, a, a wizard. He's like, strange. Kender wizard. Never thought I'd see such a thing. And he kind of, kind of gets down and looks right in the face. Goes, show me some magic then. And she's just kind of taken aback. She's like, um, cause, you know, you just don't whip out magic spells. Um, and she looks over at, at, at the king, Rafe, and Rafe's like, let me go ahead, sure. And so she steps back, and she's like, okay. And she looks a little nervous. And, she, and then all of a sudden, she just says, her face goes serious, and she starts concentrating. And Maeve and Artis just get the smile on their face, because they know that she is half Kender. When she starts talking, she does not shut up. She is just as grabby, and things end up in her pouches when they're not supposed to be. Uh, but when she starts concentrating on magic, the Kender stuff gets pushed aside. The, hen, the human half takes over, and she is full focus. Um, so she uses she casts a very small illusion spell. Nothing big, nothing that would harm anything in there, because, again, you got to remember that both her and Deacon are wild mages, which means it doesn't matter how well they cast the spell, there's always the chance it might do something different. And sometimes it's not good. So she creates an illusion of a small rainbow-colored butterfly. And it starts flitting around the room. And the baby's like, oh, you know, kind of thing. And everybody's kind of smiling at it. And it flitters over. And it comes over and lands on Thickaway's nose. And it sits there for a second flapping. And then it pops like a balloon popping, like that loud. And a bunch of glitter goes all over his face. Just put a glitter. And he looks down. He pulls the glitter off his face. And he looks at it. And he looks at it. And he goes... That was the coolest thing I've ever seen. And just starts being all excited. He's like, ah, magic. I can't believe a Kender magic. Blah, 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 blah. What's it like? How did you what, and just starts asking questions. And he just he chatters in him, chattering their ear off the whole rest of the night. You know, he was just trying to be, look cool in front of the other Kender. But uh, yeah, he's to that, that totally was mine. He's like, oh, you did that. And so they start learning, all about chatting about that. And Deacon chiming in occasionally as well, also learning uh, wild magic and such. Um, so, let me see. Figure we chat. Uh, Rafe asks plan. Deacon talks about you know they talk about what they're planning to do over the next few days, um, so on and so forth. Um, but one of the other things says, well, you know, you, you definitely take your time and you enjoy yourself the city. Um, I would ask only that you stay inside the city. If you are to leave the city, please let us know and we will have guards attend you. Um, but. In the city, you don't have to take any guards or protection. There's guards everywhere. You're not going to walk 10 feet without seeing one kind of thing. The festival going on. Um, but do me a favor and, and try to stay to the, you know, more crowd-filled people. And Deacon's like, really? What? Why is that? He goes, well, you know, it's a celebration and such. Criminal element, things of that nature. And he goes, I'll be honest. Uh, he goes, you know, something that, you know, isn't quite common knowledge. We've heard reports that the Thieves Guild may be having some issues. And Deacon's like, what's that mean? Eh, he, goes, he goes, there's rumors that there's another group trying to muscle in on territory kind of thing. So there's a bit of a, a two thieves' guilds fighting for control over the city. Um, and while there hasn't been any issues, it's probably best you just kind of you know, stay to the public areas best you can, especially at night. Um, and then, you know, that way you, know, you don't get pulled in the middle of something you don't need to. And that's not meant to be ominous. I'm just filling voids. Um, so, yeah. So they enjoy a meal, they have some stories, so on and so forth, but after all the travel, they're all pretty tired, and they want to get to the next day where the fun stuff starts, so they all head to bed pretty quickly. 
So the next day all goes as planned. The girls are taken to the temple. Okay, And I want to stress at this point that all the kids are armed. It's common for people to walk about the streets with their sword on or their dagger or whatever the case may be. And as this is their first time traveling away from home, they have their weapons with them. You know, Seraph has his sword. Deacon always has his sword, even though he's traveling in the safest place for him. You know what I mean? Petal has her staff that she has, or Hoopak, I'm sorry. Hoopak, he's probably got a couple daggers on her. And uh, both Maeve and uh, uh, Artis have their... I want to say they use Morningstars, or was it Hammers? Top of my head, I can't remember. It's Blunt, that's all I remember, because they're a cleric. Um, but uh, Deacon and Seraph and Rand, they all go to the temple to drop the girls off. The girls were especially invited to something because clearly Deacon was invited as well, but he wants to hang out with Seraph and Ran, so they're going to kind of just bumble around the town while the while the girls do their thing. So Rohan, who's the head cleric, much like Artemis is the head of hers, uh, gives them a tour of the temple. Right? It's not as big as the one in Serenity, but it's really cool. It's got a lot more dwarven-themed architecture since he designed it. Um, but they get to see a very, very special ceremony. Um, so they go to one section of the temple, and they're allowed inside. And inside this here, uh, they see that there's a huge forge made. He is a dwarf, after all. But there's a forge here, because there's quite a few people here that um, worship the mountain god. Right? Coram, the god of the, the mountain. or uh, uh, Thorin, sorry. Thorin, god of the mountain, or uh, also known as the forge lord. Um, and so they're here to see a large, uh, see a man named Barak. Uh, Barak is a very large human. He looks like he's in his 50s, but he's just pure muscle. And as soon as they get into the room, it's hot. It's very hot. And there are several assistants in there helping Barak what he's doing. Uh, but they come in and they get to sit down and, you know, they sit there for a little while and their drinks are brought in because it's hot. Uh, but they're all sitting there kind of watching him forge. Um, and Rowan kind of explains what's going on to them. Says that right now, Rohan is currently forging his pinnacle, and that he's been forging for a little over 24 hours straight without stopping. Um, now the girls, being clerics, have probably heard something about pinnacle, but like they, they don't know the specifics. None of them really worship the mountain god, and there's probably a couple in Serenity, but not a whole lot. And so they ask, okay, what is a pinnacle? And Rohan explains to them that uh, those clerics who worship the forge lord... Um, at some point in their life, will will feel an inspiration, a desire to make something. Um, they'll be feel driven to make it. They'll see that image in their head, or they'll see the design. And it could be different things. It could be a weapon, could be a shield, could be armor, could be a piece of jewelry. It's almost always going to have something metal. Uh, there may be jewels and stuff as well, but things that kind of fit within that real forge-like thing. And they'll be pushed to make that mentally. Um, and at the end of it, they will cast their spells upon it to invoke it uh, to basically create a magic item or artifact. Um, and, you know, some clerics may never get above level three. You know, you think of it from a D&D standpoint. Not everybody goes out in adventures and gets a ton of experience, right? So somebody, their pinnacle might not be that powerful. And you may have someone who's dedicated their whole life to it, who's like Rohan's level, 
Uh, he's not a cleric of Thorn, but you know, just an example. Uh, who would make something quite powerful? And Beric is one of those people. Beric is probably the equivalent of about a 13th or 14th level, so what he's going to make is going to have uh, a step above the average thing. It probably won't be quite a magic item, but an artifact. And sometimes, while they have the physical image, they don't know exactly what it's going to do, because when they cast their spells and their blessings, that is given from the Forge Lord to them. Uh, so sometimes even they can be surprised with what the end result is. Like if they're making a sword, it's going to be a sword. But a sword of what? They may not know exactly. Um, but not only will they uh, be driven to do this, of course, they'll have to use just the highest quality of stuff. You know what I mean? The gems are going to be incredibly expensive. It could take sometimes years for them to gather all the different ingredients they need to make their pinnacle. Because it's literally the pinnacle of their career. And once they've done that, um, they'll never make anything of that caliber again. They, that that's uh, they make other stuff maybe be more magical stuff, but they'll never make anything as at the caliber of their pinnacle. So they put their entire selves into it, and who they are and what they do, and the type of person they are will affect what that outcome will be. Hello, Scott. Um, so Barrack has been working. They sit there for a couple of hours until he's about finished. Um, but finally. After a couple hours and just drenched in sweat, <laughs> they're sitting there watching. He finishes, and then they forging what he's making. They get and they can see because they've been watching it for a while. He's making a sword, and it appears to be uh, just a regular long sword in size. Although they've seen you know gems set into it that just definitely glisten. glisten. The room itself is not well lit except for a couple of ventilation shafts and the uh, heat of the flames coming off the forge. Um. Yes, so it's the blade itself is incredibly beautiful, um, and they get to watch the spell cast, and that's really the big part that they're there to see, uh, because it's not common for this to happen, especially something of this mojo, and Rohan himself is going to be assisting, so when it gets to that point, um, he's not casting any spells on the weapon itself, that's purely for the maker, but he will be using spells to clarify, sanctify, and take things, anything in the room that could taint the spell or its end product. He's basically clearing the room of that so that way Bear can cast his spell. And that happens. And when it's all said and done, uh, the blade itself, which he names something, it's not important. The blade I want to point out, not important to the story. It's not a blade that's going to pop up later. This is meant more to show you something that this type of clear could produce. Um, so I'm not planting a seed with everything that I say, mind you. Uh, but the sword itself, when they're done, it turns out it will cut through stone and most metals very easily. Like, it's not like hot butter, but they can put their thing on it and cut through a rock or something. So it's a very, very sharp blade. When they do, it doesn't lose its edge. Um, but testing it, it won't cut flesh. So the sword will cut through solid inanimate objects without losing a blade, but it will not cut flesh. Looks razor sharp, you slide it across your tongue, won't do anything to you. It will not cut living flesh, which then strikes up a conversation. The girls are brought to this. Well, how could this be used to benefit people? You know, and then the conversation pops up, especially with what just recently happened in Serenity. Okay, won't cut through living flesh. Will it cut through undead flesh? Ron's like, that's a great question. We won't know until we test it. Hey, Sal, welcome. So it's one of those things where it's like, we don't know yet. These are things we're going to have to learn. Hello, Selmaz. Good day. 
uh, and you know that kind of stuff. So the excitement of the new creation of process, whether even though this is a cleric item, um, all the girls are interested in, in magic one way or another. They'll have magic, so this is something that would be very interesting to all of them. So while they're doing that, the boys go to the stables, and here they get to meet De Deacon's horse and Deacon's hippogriff. If you'll remember, the uh, Fire Moon has hippogriffs. <laughs> and so he has had one his whole life, and he loves to ride them. He's trained to do so. And so he gives them each a turn of riding on the back of his hippogriff. They've ridden horses. They're not as excited about that. So they get to ride on the hippogriffs on the back. So, hello, Shad. So, two very different experiences. Ran hates it. Um, oh, <laughs> well, I appreciate that, Sky. Thank you. <laughs> I do. Um, so, Ran hates it. Ran does not have a fear of heights. Heights itself does not bother him. But flying just makes him queasy. Doesn't like it at all. Um, and he's seen his father fly on the back of Mercy's griffin. But what he doesn't realize is that he does not like it. <laughs> Ran and Quan, neither one of them like flying. That is hereditary. They do not like that a little bit. So by the time they hit the ground, he's trying to act all brave. Again, he's the, one of the youngest of all of them. But it's all he can do not to hurl. He just hated it. Seraph, on the other hand, loved it. Um, he stayed on there as, as much as he possibly could be. You know, I mean, he loved it until they had to land and give the hippogriff a ride. But uh, he comments how much he enjoyed that, and he's, and he's like, he's like, I'll, I'll be honest with you, that was probably the coolest, most awesome sensation I've ever had in my life. And he's like, I don't know how or when, but sometime in my life, I'm gonna have to get me a mount that flies, because that was awesome. And it's one of the most excited they they see Seraph. You know, Seraph a lot of times very quiet and still, but he just goes on on loved loved flying. Uh, let's see. So they meet up with the girls that afternoon, and they go spend some time in the city. Uh, the birthday was today. Today was the big thing. They got a big meal, but they go and they grab some snacks. Uh, they all have a decent amount of money on them, and they're also very careful to keep an eye on it for, for fear of pickpockets. Even a royal or noble is not, a, not immune to pickpockets. Uh, but they go in there, and they get to hit some of the street vendors, buy a couple of little things, buy uh, you know some stuff. Uh, let's see what we've got here. So... While they're in town, Deacon takes them all to a special store. And he says, I have somewhere special I want you guys to come with me. Won't be, it's not far, but he doesn't tell them what it is. When they get there, it turns out it's a mage shop. Um, it only been open about a year, and Deacon had only been in here a couple times on his trips back, but he really wanted to show it to Dandy. So Dandy comes in, and it's owned uh, and run by a half-elven mage, female, named Dadrian. And Dadrian uh, is very excited to see Deacon. Oh, Deacon! No, you just, you know, she hears, oh, you're trained to be a mage. That's awesome, you know. The prince has some magic stuff. That means he might be a little bit uh, okay with mages. You know what I mean? Some people like him, some people don't. Father, not that big of a fan. But, you know, maybe in the next generation, it'll be cool. Um, so, you know, she's very much in there. And she kind of has this look on her face, a knowing look. And, you know, artists and Maeve and Seraph kind of pick up on it. And they're like, what's going on? 
something feels a little off to them. Well, then Deacon, you know, smiles and nods his head, and and Dadrian says, uh, "Your pedal, right?" Pedal goes, "Yeah." And he goes, "I'm told that you're a mage as well." And she's like, "Well, I'm training to be a wizard. You know, we're not mages yet, but we're working on it. You know, I go to school with uh, Deacon. You know, we're, we're friends and we train to be wild mages." She goes, "Yes, yes. Actually, he's spoken of you quite often." And she's like, "Oh, really? Well, that's awfully nice." Because again, pedal is basically oblivious. Um, he goes, yes. And he asked me if I could get something for you. Pell's like, oh. And she reaches down behind the counter and she pulls out a little wooden box and she opens it up and she takes it out. And in her hand is a very fancy silver tip scroll case. It in itself is fancy and waterproof. Important for scroll cases. Buy the waterproof ones. I'm telling you, soggy spell scrolls. Not something you want to deal with. Waterproof, silver-tipped. They give it to her. And she opens it up, and inside is a scroll. And when she takes it out, it's a spell scroll. Deacon had commissioned a special spell scroll to be made for Dandy. Um, he's like, hey, I didn't get you anything for your birthday a couple months ago. The, you know, I said I was going to get you something later, and you forgot about it. It's because I was having this made, so on and so forth. It's not that big of a deal. I just thought you might like it a little bit, you know, so on and so forth. Well, she's ecstatic. And it's a spell that I don't have it down here, which specifically, well, it'll pop up later. But it's uh, you know, something that would be kind of fun that would be up her alley. And so she's super excited because not only she get this cool scroll case, she gets a spell scroll. And if she does her magic right, she can learn this new spell. You can cast it directly from the scroll, but if you do, it then basically burns up, the scroll is empty, and you've used the spell once. But if you successfully copy it into your spell book, then you can cast that spell moving forward. So, giving someone a new spell to a wizard, that's serious business. Especially someone as uh, low level as them, who mostly only have cantrips and maybe have a spell at this point. A real spell, maybe two. And I can tell you it's magic missile, because any mage worth their worth takes magic missile first. They've got several cantrips and such. you know. But uh, you know, to get another spell, even if she's like, I can't cast this now, knowing she has that, that she can eventually learn that spell, huge thing. So she's super, super exciting, and she just jumps over to Deacon and gives him like this great big old hug, and, and thank you, thank you, thank you, and all that kind of stuff, and the whole time, his face just gets red, and he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm, kind of like, I'm glad you liked it, you know, I saw it, I thought maybe, you know, maybe somebody liked it, and kind of stuff like that, and it's all everyone else can do, even Seraph, not to burst into laughter, because Petal's so excited about this, and what a nice gift it is, and you're awfully, that she's not picking up on anything, <laughs> she is 100% oblivious, but it's one of those things where you know she's super. He got he got a reaction. He was happy. She's very very happy for it. So uh, that went well. Again, everyone can see it except Petal. So like I said, they do them different things and such uh, until they travel back home uh, for the actual official birthday, right? Because they're gonna be a big dinner for his little brother. He's gonna be there. It's still babies. One. I don't know what babies can do when they're one. Don't have a lot of babies in my life. So the baby's doing one year old baby stuff. I don't know if that's eat solid food. I don't know if you can walk. I don't know if you can write a novel. If you're one, you, he's doing what one-year-old babies do. We'll talk. I'll, I have to research babies. I don't know. Uh, but they're, they're, they're getting to hang out and such. And there's a lot of cool treats. And there's cake and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and they just have a big kind of fun party banquet. 
Um, but at the end of that, you know, they that's kind of, you know, they don't go back into the city that day because they're there spending most of the time actually celebrating the birthday until the end of the night. So the next day comes rolling along. The next day, another special, special event was planned. And this was a tour of Thickaway's house. Now, Thickaway's house, very special. And I, I believe I've mentioned it once or twice way back in the day. But uh, we're going to go into a little bit more detail. So they get to go to Thickaway's house. Thickaway's house stands in what would be, most people would appear, is a little park. Very grassy, there's some benches, and most people use it as such. But his home is an incredibly fat, short tree. If you ever saw the old Gummy Bears cartoon, or if you ever saw, uh, I'm trying to think of other ones like that, you know, it's like the Keebler Elves, where the tree is bushy, but it's not super high, but, you know, it's really fat. And its doors built right into it. The house was magically created for Thickaway. And he doesn't the land around it, you know, kids play and such, and he loves that. But the house was made very special for Thickaway. And they get inside, and it's exactly what you'd expect out of a Kender home. It's atrocious. Uh, the, none of the colors match anything, you know. There's stuff everywhere. And I don't mean that cluttered or dirty. Very, very much far from that. Thickaway's very orderly. But when it comes to decorations, it's like, you know, he's the type of person... Thickaway collected two things. And one of them was bones. He wanted a bone from one of every type of thing he ever fought or found. So it's the type of thing where you'll find little skulls or medium-sized skulls on plaques hanging on walls and stuff or antlers over here or a horn or a, or a claw. Some type of thing from all the stuff that they found. Um, and uh, there's one that actually talks about his um, one of his favorite ones is this big wooden plaque on the wall and on tiny it's just this little tiny bone and it's all part of one of his favorite stories where he was out by himself one day and had to fight the world's smallest giant and took its finger bone as a prize uh, talks about how vicious the battle was uh, most people would have never survived, but thankfully, due to his overwhelming skill and capabilities, he managed to defeat the world's smallest, yet most dangerous giant. Because it was still had all the strength of a giant, uh, but was only a foot and a half tall. Uh, no one else was there to see it, uh, or could verify the exactly what type of bone it is, but uh, he tells the story quite frequently whenever given the opportunity. Um, and that's pretty cool. They enjoy that. Um, but the best part is when they get to go into the basement because he has a basement. Um, and so they go in these stairs and they make their way down and all of them, except Deacon, who's been there before, gets their mind blown a little bit. So when they walk into this room, it's not a room. It has the same effect as the chest of holding. It's twice as big downstairs as it ever could actually be outside. But inside of here, there's a river that flows through it. There are trees that are growing, plants flowers. There are birds singing. There are little animals running everywhere. And it doesn't go on forever, but the walls look like they're sky. Uh, the ceiling, it looks kind of like you're outside. There's a breeze, fresh air. There's fish in the river. The water flows from one end to the other end of the room, but where it goes or where it comes from, no one knows. This was part of the magic that was created 
This was created through a wish. Because he also collected pets. He loves animals. There's a deer in there. There's going to be bunnies. His cat's in here. It's like, you know, and occasionally it'll lightly rain. And it'll have weather effects. Never gets winter. Never gets cold or something uncomfortable for the cats. But like it light rains and things like that for a little bit. And animals will play in it. Uh, but they all, he, he's always bringing home a new animal. There's mice in there running around. Maybe a hamster. You know, but uh, the basement was always his place where he kept all the cool little animals that he found. And he had a small pouch of holding uh, that would only hold small animals, but it always it never ran out of air. So he'd find little animals and put them in there and he could feed them and then bring them home and put them in there. That was a gift from from uh, Zoltan for helping on the quest with Rafe and Nyla. So he still has that pouch. Uh, but yes, so he, they get to see his magical basement, which is his personal little forest full of animals. So they should spend some time there, and then they head back home where they have lunch with the king. Uh, the queen is tending to the little brother and such, but they spend some time with the king. And then they go down and they attend the first day of the tournament. And they get to see the jousting and the sword events and all that kind of stuff. Um... They get to spend some time walking around, looking at the street vendors. There's games and things, and all the kids play some of the games, except for Seraph, uh, who refuses um, because he doesn't want to uh, win. And that's one of those things. Seraph normally stays out of competitions because his skin, his skill, and his natural strength and speed, he's almost always going to win, and he doesn't want to do that, take it away from everybody else. So he almost always abstains from any activities of that nature. Uh, but they get to that. While they're there, Artis finds uh, a really, really pretty carving of a horse. Mom loves horses. She loves her griffin, too, but she loves horses. So Artis sees this and is like, oh, I want to buy this for my mom. And so a big chunk of her money goes towards that. But it's it's like a wooden carve, but it's incredibly lifelike and it's a good size. And she's excited. They, they take a trip back to the castle. They can leave it in the room. They don't carry around all day. Uh, but they get, she gets that for her mom. And all that's kind of happening. So, wow, it's already 9.15. Interesting. Interesting. You're not able to join the Discord. Uh, Go to my website, onlydraven.com. There's a button near the top you can click on. should take you right in there, Shad. Uh, Sometimes the link in in the description doesn't work. If you go there, that one should work just fine for you. Okay. So they get to see kind of these things. So afterwards, you know, gets cooler, sun goes down a little bit. Lots of partying in the streets, you know. And they get to hang out. This is the first night they've got to go down there and really get to see all this stuff that's going on. And they're kind of just hanging out and just watching stuff. Like I said, that's where there's some games, you know. Throw the ball and knock the pins over. Ring on the bottle. You know, darts in a balloon. All the traditional fair stuff that, you know, wouldn't require electricity. (laughs) All the stuff that they could reproduce at that point. And, uh... Uh, you know, Maeve is at one point just gear, is just determined to win a horse for uh, a stuffed uh, not a horse a stuffed uh, uh, a rabbit for her uh, one of her siblings, and so she's up there just whipping these balls, trying to hit these cans, and she and she get, every so every so often here these are magic cans. There's no way that can moved. I swear that can moved. Like she's so mad because she just can't quite seem to hit it. Um, but you know, it's nothing wrong with the cans. It's just not good at throwing stuff. <laughs> so, you know, that's kind of happening. They're having a good time. So the kids, so, so the, the girls and Ran are kind of doing that. And Deacon and Seraph uh, just 
kind of sit on a, on a bench. There's a bench just off to the side. There's some games and stuff. And there's a big area where some music's being played. People are dancing. And they're just kind of sitting back and relaxing and, and watching all the festivity, listening to the music, that kind of stuff. Maybe chatting a little bit between themselves. Um, while that's going on, Deacon's explaining some of the dances. Because, you know, some of the dances you had back in that type of thing are kind of like line dancing and such, where the moves mean different things, and yeah, this dance means this, and this the step, and the blah blah blah, and this symbolizes the this. Because again, he's he's trying to show all the cool stuff he can think of to Seraph, right? He wants to show off for his friend. So, while they're sitting there listening to people laughing and chatting and dancing and music, through all that noise and sound, Seraph hears the tiny jingling of what sounds like a couple bells. Just a light jingling. And for most people, they would never pick that up. But his hearing so good that odd sounds that pop up out of nowhere are going to interest him. He fears the, it's a faint sign of some type of chime or bells. He starts looking through the crowd, trying to see where the sound is coming from. Deacon's still chatting about the dancing. When a short distance away, he sees a young woman. She looks to be probably 17 or 18. Uh, long, light brown hair tied up with a blue ribbon. Uh, she's wearing what would be a simple dress, but pretty. And she's carrying a basket. And it appears that she's selling flowers. There are some small bells that hang from the side of the basket. So when she moves around, the little bells chime. So this girl's, you know, walking around selling flowers. And if, you, if you've ever been in a downtown area at night, you'll run across people like that, you know. Uh, buy a rose for your girl, mister, you know, kind of thing. Uh, I've seen that stuff. I've done it. Not, not sold them, but I've bought them and things like that on dates and such. Um, so you see things like that. This young woman's walking around selling flowers to people. Same kind of thing. Not, not all roses, different types of flowers in there, but something of that nature. Like I said, the girl, she looks pretty. Well, it only takes Deacon a moment to realize his friend hasn't moved or blinked in about two minutes. And he looks at him, he's following his, he's trying to see what he sees, and he sees the girl too. And he looks at Seraph and he's like, My friend, what is it you're looking at? And Seraph just, all he says is the word eyes, like eyes staring at the girl. And he can't, he's staring at her in her eyes so much that it, it takes him a, him a moment to realize that she, she's on her way over toward them. He's halfway there before he realizes it. Of course, as she approaches, she greets the prince first. The prince is well known. Even if you've never seen the prince, I'm sure he's wearing an outfit that has a crest of royalty. He's got something on him that you will know he's the, he's the, the prince, right? And she greets him, of course. And, you know, same thing, welcome home. Because, you know, everybody knows he travels. Um, and asks him, would you, would you like to buy a flower for someone special? Deacon gets a little red in the face, and he's like, uh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, take, I'll take a flower. And uh, she says, oh, excellent. And she gives him a price. He hands her a couple, hands her a coin, and he gives him a very, very clean flower and says, wow, for, to receive something like that from the prince himself, she must be a very, very special girl. 
And, and he's like, yeah, it's, you know, it's somebody I know and such. Like, I mean, you know, just kind of hang out sometimes. Like a friend of mine, you know. And he gets all red. The girl then turns and looks at Seraph and asks Deacon, and who is this fine young lord next to you? And Seraph just sits there. And he just doesn't say anything. just staring at her for a moment or so until Deacon finally takes it upon himself to introduce him. This is Deacon, or this is Seraph. Uh, he's my best friend. He's traveling from the kingdom of Serenity. He's here for the festival and such. He's uh, hanging out with us. And the girl smiles and says, Well, well met, Seraph. May I ask, would you like to buy a flower? He says, Surely an attractive young man like yourself must have someone special. And then comments, Especially with beautiful hair like that. Because remember, his hair is white. You don't see that every day. Seraph struggles to speak. He finds himself tripping over his own words. He's quiet normally, but the man normally doesn't have these issues. And finally shakes his head and says, No, I, I, I don't have anyone to give one to. The girl smiles and tilts her head a little bit and looks at him for a second. And she reaches into her basket and pulls out a flower. She snaps the stem off. So it shortens it. And then she leans in on his head. Sarah freezes and doesn't move. He does this for two reasons. One, he doesn't know what's happening. But number two, Seraph is always conscious that even the wrong movement accidentally, he might hurt somebody. He is very strong and he's very fast. And so in situations where he's not sure what's happening, he has to literally get himself to not move for fear of accidentally hurting someone without trying to. But she reaches in and tucks the flower in his hair, kind of over his over his ear. And uh, and says, Well, it won't be, I'm sure it won't be long until you're breaking hearts like our prince here, with a big smile. I'm sure it'll be in no time. And then uh, she thanks Deacon, turns and begins to leave. Seraph blurts out, kind of stumbly, asking her what her name is. And she smiles and says that her name is Danielle, but everyone calls him calls her Dina. Seraph thanks her for the flower, and she waves, and she heads out back into the, the group of crowd to continue selling her flowers. Seraph watches her leave, admiring the grace of her movements until she's finally lost in the crowd. Deacon is just sitting there looking at Seraph with a smile on his face. Seraph's oblivious to it. Until he finally says, Seraph, my friend, your jaw must be getting filthy. It's been on the ground for quite a while now. <laughs> Seraph realizes he's sitting there, <laughs> like just, looks up, and he, 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 he catches himself. Because in his mind, you know, if, you're, if you've ever been in that moment, you don't realize you look like an idiot when you're uh, just staring at someone. You don't know you look as bad as you do until someone points it out or you see it later. You know, you're just like sometimes maybe you're watching a movie, maybe you're hearing a song, but in that moment when you're concentrating on something, you look horrible. <laughs> it is a fact of life. When you're that focused on something, you're oh, 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 drool falling out of your face, kind of thing. So there's that kind of thing. The comment made by Deacon, of course, shocks him back into himself, and they look at each other for a moment. Deacon's smiling, Seraph, you know, kind of holding his mouth because he realized he did, and then they both start laughing. You know, they just both start laughing at the whole situation of it all. It's about that time that the girls in Ran return. 
Maeve, overwhelmingly excited. Look, look, she says, you're not going to believe it. And they're laughing, and they turn to her, and, she, and she's sitting there with her hands full. She goes, I found a pie vendor. They have pie here. And that was just more than Sarah Deacon could take. And they just start cackling in laughter. And she's like, what? And there's a little bit still on her face, dribbling off the bit of her little chin hair. But it, 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 it's good pie. It, it's, it's pie. It's really good pie. When they ask what's funny, they can't stop laughing. The night continues on. They enjoy themselves and find themselves once again back at the keep that night to get some sleep. Now the next day again, there's a very there's another special event. Today there's going to be a parade. Now parade is not something Serenity has really ever had. They didn't quite. It's not something that's ever popped up. So they're very excited to see their first parade. And Deacon says, "Oh yes, every year people decorate their wagons. Different farmers, different people, especially a lot of the the local businesses will do that. Try to advertise their stores and such. And they'll travel through and people in costumes and dressed like clowns and jesters and things. And sometimes they'll throw candy into the audience. And they're like, this sounds awesome. I totally want to see this." So they get to go and watch the parade. And the parade is early. It's right before lunch. It's to start off the day. And they get to watch it. And sure enough, there's people you know, you know, spitting fire and doing all the you know, carnival kind of stuff in the parade and dancing along and twirling batons and sticks and such. And people walk around playing flutes and things. So it's a very exciting thing. They all get to see the parade. Very, very cool stuff. Um, and then after that, they get to see the archery contest. Um, Again, it's just one of those things that's being run that day. It's just something fun they get to watch. No special reason. They return back to the keep because they're going to get a very, very uh, special uh, lunch. Um, the king has arranged for them to eat uh, silverfish. So silverfish, for those of you who may remember an older episode, the king explains, come from a couple. comes from one lake far to the northeast, just on the border of what is Fire Moon's kingdom. Uh, and he has worked out uh, with the uh, small towns that live around the lake uh, trade, and he, the fish are incredibly delicious and only found in that one location. And so they get to try these delicious silverfish, which are expensive and shipped in for this special occasion. Um, in the afternoon, they spend some time at the castle, because a very, very relatively famous bard an elven bard is coming through uh, and will be performing in honor of the prince's birthday week. Um, while this is going on and you're watching and such and he's singing and telling his stories, he entertains for a good hour, hour and a half. Through it all, no matter what they're doing that day, whether it's the parade, the archery, the delicious fish, or even the, the bard, Seraph finds himself only thinking of one thing. And that's Dina, the young woman he met the night before. Even during the bard. Deacon even comments to him about one point. It's unlike Seraph. Seraph's always adored watching a bard's performance. And this one's extra talented. He's very good. Songs with great voice and the stories he's telling. All the kids are clapping and stuff. Maybe have a couple magic tricks that, you know, illusions kind of thing go along with it. Um... But uh, it's like, yeah, it's odd. You're not, you're not really focused. Seraph 
tries to explain. It's just, any, I mean, he's obviously struggling with it. And Deacon holds up his hand and goes, worry not, my friend. He goes, um, he goes, he goes, clearly you're smitten with the girl. It's quite obvious. Sarah's like, it is? Deacon's like, yes, yes it is. He goes, tell you what, tonight, after this is all done and we've had our dinner, if you'd like, we'll go back and hang out or hang around that town again. Maybe maybe we'll be lucky and she'll come by. You can say hi again. And uh, Seraph's like, I think I'd like that, yeah. If that's all right? He goes, yeah, sure. We don't have any special plans. We're just going to hang out. We'll go down and hang out around the bench and maybe if we're lucky, she'll come back around. Now, while they're having this conversation, the girls are overhearing it. You know, they're only a short distance away. They don't say anything, but they're delighted. Seraph is normally so withdrawn. You know, um, they never saw the girl. Um, but they're also intrigued. What girl is it that could make Seraph uh, come out of his shell a little bit? How interesting. We'll have to keep an eye out this evening in case she comes around. Size her up ourselves. So they're going to uh, try and be sneaky and stay in the area so they can keep an eye out and see her as well. So after the evening ends and things are fine, or the, the, all the events are gone, they have a dinner there as well. Uh, once again, they make their way back out into the city as the sun goes down. And they find themselves, you know, seeing sights and playing games, getting candy apples and popped corn and things of this nature, snacks they don't normally see all over the place. Um... And they make their way back to the same bench that they were sitting on before, the previous night. And, of course, again, the sounds of music and dancing is going on nearby. The girls and Ran, not too far away either. Uh, they've all got themselves some type of snack, and they're kind of sitting uh, a ways so they can kind of see them without being obvious, but trying to, to watch to see what happens. Um, and they sit there for you know, a couple of hours. Uh, several times... The girls and Rand will go get snacks or go to play a game or some of them will go to this while someone always stays there and watch to keep an eye out. But Deacon and Seraph are just sitting there chatting away on the bench. Seraph almost gives up hope until suddenly in the crowd he hears the slight jingle of bells. Again, looking through the crowd, he sees her in a distance away. She sees that she's currently selling some flowers to a young couple across the way. Uh, let's see. Uh, give me one second here. Oh, and then points her out to Deacon. <laughs> Lost my point. Points her out to Deacon. Deacon is like, I mean, just play it cool. He's like, just remain calm. It'll be fine. You know, when she gets over here, we'll just strike up a conversation. You imagine this, right? It's a 13-year... Uh, like, it's like 11, almost 12, and a boy who's 15. Like, okay, we're just going to be cool. Here's our plan. This is what we're going to do. You know, and trying to you know, figure out ahead of time what's going to happen. Um, after a few minutes, you know, she's selling some flowers. She's looking around, looking to see if there's anyone else who might be interested. And she notices them sitting on the bench. She smiles and comes walking back over. And at this time, both of the boys stand up you know, to greet her. Dina smiles and says, Well, fancy meeting you both here again. And looks at Deacon and says, Did your special someone enjoy her flower? And all the, I'm going to be totally cool, don't worry about it, we'll circle up a conversation, goes out the window, he's like, Oh yeah, I mean, I, she kind of, I thought she liked it. I mean, I 
you know, I kind of put it in her room, and she, she didn't really say anything, but I'm pretty sure she probably liked it. I mean, she likes flowers, you know. <laughs> the same thing, the same issue. And so, you know, just kind of, everybody's listening to music, and they chat a little bit, and, and she's like, so what are your, you know, asks, oh, what are your plans for the evening? And, uh, let's say, you know, nothing in particular, we're just here enjoying the celebration, we had some things at the castle a little bit earlier and such, um, but we're just, you know, kind of down here just enjoying the, the entertainment, the games, the food, and so on. And, you know, just small talk, if you will. As they're standing there, just kind of hanging out, you know, Seraph notices that she st- the girl starts swaying a little bit to the music, because the nearby band is playing. And De- Seraph is doing his very best not to watch her moving. You know what I mean? Uh, unconvincingly tries to look everywhere else. Right? You can imagine that, right? Here's this pretty girl kind of dancing. He's like, okay, I'm trying not to, trying to be appropriate here. You know, you know trying not to look. Um, the girls in Ran at this point have moved a little bit closer, hiding behind a stall, watching all this is going on. Ran comments, she looks pretty. Maeve is like, really? It's hard to tell with humans. I guess. <laughs> Maeve, you know, still trying to learn that part. Then they all giggle a little bit at her comment and comment on, and they of course giggle also at Seraph's obvious discomfort. Like they can see this. So they're sitting there, sort of standing there, kind of talking a little bit, just hiding, mostly just kind of all standing near each other, not really saying much. When all of a sudden someone says, Dina, would you like to dance? The words were out of his mouth before Seraph even realized he'd said them. And immediately, it's all I could do not to slap his hands over his mouth. Everyone, Deacon as well as the girls in Ran, are shocked. Something so forward to come from Seraph, who is not normally like that. Dina stops and looks at him. Kind of tilts her head and kind of looks at him, you know, kind of giving the once over looks at him for a minute. And then smiles and says, Yes, I would love to. She turns to Deacon and says, My lord, would you mind watching my flowers for me for just a few moments? Deacon's like, Of course, of course, I'd be happy to. I'll keep them right here on the bench. Watch them every second. You won't lose a one, I promise. And then she smiles and she takes Sarah's hand and leads him out into the dance floor. Now again, even though she's a couple, he's a couple years younger than her, he doesn't really look that. And he stands a full head taller. She barely comes up to his chin. You know. And uh, they begin to dance. And immediately, Seraph's good at it. Some people would say it's a blessing. Some people would call it a curse. But almost anything physical, if he sees somebody do it once or twice, he can almost perfectly imitate it. That's not everything in the world. You know, somebody reads off a poem, he's not going to be able to write, read it back word for word. But when it comes to physical movements, it's very easy for him to mimic someone's movements just by seeing it once or twice. And so, watching the dancers and Deacon explaining some of it yesterday, even as he's walking on the dance floor, he's seeing the movement, uh, the people, the common movement. And this one, it's not like you're all doing a line dance, it's just people dancing. Uh, it doesn't take him long to step in and immediately be able to reproduce what he saw other people doing. Um, so he's pretty good from it right off the bat. Um, after a moment, he's able to stop concentrating on the steps and what he's doing, and begins to concentrate more on her. 
As they move across the dance floor, dancing, she's smiling and laughing, he can smell the, the fragrance of flower from her, as well as a hint of leather, oddly enough. Uh, new leather. He can tell the difference. Very, very sensitive nostrils. But Dean is dancing and laughing and smiling, and it makes him do the same. And they're kind of just bumbling around the dance floor for a good seven minutes, doing the twirling. He's twirling around and stuff, and they have a lot of fun. Um, eventually, though, the music stops, uh, in Sarah's opinion, drastically way too soon. And everyone, of course, stops and is clapping for the band. The two return back to Deacon, um, who says, look like they had a lot of fun. And Dina thanks him, says, yes, I really did. Thank you so much, my lord, for the dance. Dina takes her basket back from Deacon, um, who remarks that it's deceivingly heavy. Dina laughs and says, well, with luck, it'll be much lighter by the end of the night. You know, she's trying to sell them, right? That's the whole point of it. So, you know, they're kind of just standing there at that point. And Sarah says, if you would like, I could carry it for you for a while. The girls, who with Rand again, have snuck even closer, again, surprised by his boldness. Again, so is Deacon. But no one is more shocked than Seraph himself. He's confused by how confident he sounds, while inside he's a complete mess. Once again, Dina looks at him, kind of looks at him, kind of judging a little bit, kind of looking at him. And once again, smiling, said, yes, I think I'd like that a lot. Seraph takes the basket from the young woman, which for him is overwhelmingly light, of course. And then Deacon says, well, I'm going to go ahead and catch up with the rest of our friends, Seraph. Uh, you know, try not to be out too late. Seraph did not think he was going to be going alone. He assumed Deacon would be coming. He's like, what? Excuse me? He's like, yeah, yeah you guys have fun. I'm going to catch up with the girls and uh, I'll see you back at the castle tonight. Don't stay out too late. <laughs> and then Deacon turns and begins to walk away. And Seraph's like, um, Deacon? Deacon? But then he feels to take her hand and said, ah, here's some people. I think they might want flowers. And he feels himself and the basket being pulled towards a crowd. Deacon watches them go and smiles to himself. And in, just to himself, he says, Well done, my brother. Good luck. Over the next few hours, Seraph accompanies Dina around the kingdom. You know, around the city, I should say. As she's selling her flowers, right? See all sorts of different flowers. She's walking around trying to sell them. Again, pretty girl trying to sell her flowers. Um, very quickly, she comments how much of a benefit it is having Seraph there. Not only is she carrying the, he carrying the heavy flowers for, but right off the bat finds, uh, you know, makes a comment and he goes, you know, sometimes I try to sell flowers to the gentlemen and they get a little bit too flirty. Um, they're, not, they're, they're not doing that as much with Seraph there. Um, and at the same time, with Seraph standing there, some of the girls whose man is buying a flower aren't getting quite as jealous either. So it ends up being quite a benefit having Seraph there. And while they're going around and such, Dina occasionally can't help but notice that all the multiple young women who are eyeing, eyeing Seraph as well. You know, because again, Seraph's a very good-looking dude. You know, and again, that white hair, right, that's, that's going to stand out in any crowd. Here's a guy dressed all in black, but with snow-white long hair. 
He's got it tied up right now with a ribbon, but still, long white hair. And while Gina seems to notice this, Seraph oblivious to all of it. He asks her about herself, and as they're walking around and such, they, they end up starting a new conversation, and they... Sarah finds the conversation comes very easily. She does most of the talking, and he he he's naturally not like that. Or he would rather listen, but he asks questions and answers when asked, and things and so on. And the conversation flows quite normally. But he asks about herself. Ask her, you know, you know, like know more about you, so on and so forth. Dina tells him that she lives with her grandparents and her uncle. Her father was a knight of Firemoon who had died in a battle against a large force of orcs that attacked the northern towns of the kingdom when she was only ten years old. Her mother, who she adored, passed away one night the the previous winter. She'd gone to bed early one night, just feeling a little under the weather, nothing major, but the next morning when they went to wake her, had found that she'd passed. So ever since then, she's been living with her grandparents and her uncle. Her grandfather is a cobbler, relatively successful one. Uh, you know, for those of you who may not know, a cobbler is a shoe repairman or maker of shoes. Uh, and his grandmother is a herbalist, or her grandmother is a herbalist. And so, um, you know, she, her grandmother is one that's taught her in health of gardening and the flowers, and she sells the flowers to help out and make a little bit of money of her own. Her uncle, um, where's her uncle? Her uncle was a mercenary who had made a small fortune in his youth and mostly lives on that and the occasional job he picks up now and again just to refresh in the pot, if you will. Um, but all three of them adore her. She adores them. They all kind of live together. Uh, Dina works for both of her grandparents, helping with the herbalist, herbalism and, and the stuff that she makes out of the flowers, learning some of that. She's more interested in that, the cobbling, but she does help in the store as well, things like that here. And through the conversation, they learn that she's never left the kingdom. Uh, her and her mother and father lived more to the north, where her father was stationed, if you will, until he passed. And then they came here to live with the grandma, grandpa, and, and the uncle until mom passed away, and now it's just her with them. Um, but she's never left, other than going up north, she's never left the area at all. She's always lived in, in Firemoon. She's heard of places like Serenity. Most everyone knows the major cities in the southern kingdoms, right? Paxwall, Arduel, Cronear, uh, which is the Minotaurs, Thorman, Corman, which is the Dwarves, right? All these little cities that have, have kingdoms that have kind of allied together. Um, so she's known, although she's never been to any of them. Seraph, of course, answers questions asked of himself the same way. Um, he's a little nervous when he begins to discuss his parentage because he worries that, you know, that might kind of be a, a, a you know a, a deal breaker, right? Oh yeah, yeah, my dad's a half demon, half vampire. My mom's an elf. Like you just don't throw that out there. Um, but at the same time, uh, he feels it's very important that he doesn't want to lie. He wants to tell her the truth. And so, discussing it with her, he's like, "No, because my father is uh, on the planet that my father is from." You would say he's a naturally a race of people that are naturally strong and fast. As such, I have some of those skills. I've inherited those as well. Uh, my mother is an elf, and she is the high cleric of Saren. She try, he tries to slide that out, not trying to make it like a brag, but she's very impressed. Like, Lady Artemis. I have heard of Lady Artemis. Yes. Artemis has been here 
way, way, way long time ago, long before Dina would have ever been out there. But you, you hear about that, right? The elven cleric and the giant temple that everyone, you know, that's, that's just, that's news, right? Uh, she finds it all very, very interesting. None of it bothers her at all. After the last flower is finally sold, the two of them sit by a fountain and talk late into the night. Mostly just enjoying each other's company, but finally as it gets to the point where it's getting pretty late, the streets around them are mostly empty. Seraph, of course, um, offers to escort her home, make sure she gets home okay. She even mentions she's normally not out this late. She accepts and he helps walk her home. It's a, again, modest, nice, decent-looking home over top of a cobbler shop. And just through the, even through the window of the cobbler shop, you can see that it's a good-sized store. The grandfather does, in fact, have a pretty good little business going on there. Supposedly, he has a couple employees as well. So it's, it's a decent-sized business. They're not a poor family by any means. She sells the flowers just kind of to make her own, herself her own money. Um, but he's got her home there. Her grandparents are kind of watching for her. Because, again, she's out later than normal. When they get back, she stops. She says, she, she goes, oh, I feel bad. I, I made them worry. I was out much later than I normally should be. And Seraph, and Seraph's like, oh, I understand. Hopefully, hopefully Flynn's not burning a, a path in the carpet going back and forth as well. I, I may get an earful when I get back as well. And they both kind of laugh over that. And they say goodbye. She goes through the door. And, of course, Seraph stops and goes, can I see you again? And she stops and looks at him and says that she would like that very much. And so they plan to meet again the next night at the same bench around the same time. Maybe Seraph can help her with her flowers again. He wishes her well, you know, wishes her good night. She goes inside. Grandpa lets her in, so waves at him. He goes. Seraph returns to the castle in an overwhelmingly great mood. <laughs> By the time he gets back, most of the castle is asleep, although there's guards that are waiting. You know, they know he's coming in. He shows up. He gets inside. And when he gets back to the room, Flynn is there. Seraph immediately apologizes for worrying him. I'm so sorry I was out late. I know I shouldn't have someone. And Flynn stops and goes, no, it's fine. It's fine. Listen, you're, <laughs> he goes, Listen, you're a young man now. You're going to go out. You're going to go do things. You have that freedom. He said, in no way am I here to judge that. I'm here in case you need me. I'd be lying if I didn't say I'm glad to see you're back home. But we trust you. But I'm still happy you made it back. <laughs> so, night goes by. They sleep. Next day, tells all the details to Deacon and the rest of the kids. Because at this point, they're all like, we all know, man. you got to tell us what happened. They're all sitting in the girls' room and they're kind of trying. And, and, and tells everything they know about, he learned about Dina. Um, everybody's really excited for her because like, she seems like a really nice girl. And like, oh, Sarah's sweet on somebody. You know how it is back in this type of thing. You're a young person. I'm not saying you're going to marry in this person, but it's cool you've got your first girl you're interested in. That's pretty cool. Um, everyone asks if they can meet her. Sarah says yes and tells that that night plans her to meet again at the bench. So if they'd like to come along, he'd be happy to introduce them to her. And then, you know, they're, they're to bug her off and they all laugh at that. So the rest of the day, they're going through more you know, special events and such, and while all the children are having a good time and such, the day is taking way too long in Sarah's opinion. It's taking forever. And he's still enjoying himself, you know. He's, he, he's getting pleasure out of doing things that Deacon wants to show them and stuff. So he's having a good time, but he's just eager to get to that evening so he can meet Dina.
That night, the children all gather together at the bench and begin to wait. This is the last night of the celebration, so a lot of people are still out kicking it and dancing and music, and all the stuff from the other nights are there. This being the last night, you know, a lot of people have their wares and leftover socks, you know, at a lower price to try to clear out some things they don't have to take home. So the children take the opportunity to buy some more souvenirs and gifts for loved ones and family back home uh, and get snacks and things of that nature. Um, and then they'll sit on the bench and then they wait. And they don't have watches, of course. Time doesn't move quite like that <laughs> in, in merged worlds, but they're kind of hanging out. And they wait, and they wait, and they wait. And well past the time that Dean is supposed to be there, she does not appear. Seraph is beginning to worry. Children, in their own way, trying to be cool, but questioning, like, you sure things went well? Seraph is positive. He said, yes. Yes. I, it, was, it was a wonderful evening, and I, I have no doubt that she, when she said she'd be here, she said she'd be here. They sat there and they wait till it's a good hour after the time she's supposed to arrive. It's possible that maybe she's just selling her flowers and is running late. Maybe she's not feeling well. It could be a lot of different reasons she's not there. But Rand says, hey, you know where she lives, right? Sarah's like, yes, I walked her home. He's like, well, why don't we just go check on her? I mean, let's be honest. I mean, when it all comes down to it, you know, the prince, wink, wink, shows up to check and make sure your granddaughter's okay. That's, that's not something you're normally going to be unhappy about. Deacon's like, that's right. Yeah, I mean, you know, if I said hi, you know, I met her the other day. She was supposed to be there today. I didn't see her. You know, we're just a little worried, make sure she's okay. I'm sure that they would take that as a positive thing, not a negative thing, not being nosy. Sarah's eager says, okay, yeah, that, that'll work. So they start heading that direction. The kids come with them. So all of them are traveling that way. They're making their way in towards what was more of a residential area, away from where the businesses and such are. And the music's fading off in the, in the background, and there's less and less people. Most of the people are either in bed already or at one of the parties celebrating. There's no, crowd, there's no crowds in this area. It's much quieter. They're halfway to where he left Dina the, the, the previous night when he begins to smell flowers. He tells them, hey, I smell, I smell, that's her flowers. And they're always like, man, you and that nose, dude. It's crazy that you, you can, from here, you can smell a basket of flowers. How do you know it's not just other flowers? He's like, nope, these are the same flowers. And so they start making their way, going a little bit quicker. They travel only a short distance by the edge of an alley when they all come to a quick stop. Laying on the ground is Dina's basket. The flowers spilled all around it. Let me get a drink real quick. That's good stuff. All right. Seraph, of course, immediately gets very, very serious. And a conversation immediately starts between the children. Rand's instinct is, let's go find some guards. If this, is, this looks like something's good, or this isn't good, let's go get the guards, right? Because again, Rand's very much on keeping things orderly. Let's get the guards. No reason we should deal with this. I don't want the princess getting into any trouble. Why don't we go get the guards? 
the girls think, well, maybe we should still go to her house, right? Just because it was dropped here doesn't mean maybe we should go to her house and let her family know because her family may not know she's missing as well. It might be important for them they didn't know this. And Deacon wants to go look for her. As they kind of go back and forth a little bit, Deacon said, you know, silences them all quickly. Silence. He's kind of smelling. He's like, she lives that direction. But she went that way. She points down the, the, the alley that goes between several buildings. He doesn't wait to ask them their opinion. He just starts walking that direction. The other children are like, oh, I guess that's what we're doing then. And they all follow Seraph. They travel a distance through the alley into another street, crossing it again into a second alley. As they make their way to the end of this alley, it comes to an end. On the ground, kind of on the wall, slightly on an angle, is a large metal grate. Deacon easily recognizes it as an entrance into one of, one of the entrances to the sewer. Rand draws their attention to a large, heavy metal bar leaning up, laying on the ground nearby. And they also notice that there are new scratches on the grate as well. It only takes them a moment to realize that someone has used the bar to raise or lift the heavy gate at some point recently. They begin again to speak, but Seraph very quickly stops them. He still smells flowers. But his face takes a very grave look when he says, but I also smell blood. Artists will ask how in the world he could smell that when the smell from the sewers, a very pungent, stinky smell, is all that's wafting up at them. Because all we smell is poo. How in the world can you smell flowers? And even more so, how can you smell blood? Seraph looks at her, and in a very calm way, and actually comes across a little, little, make a little nervous. Like when he says it, it's very like this is how it is. But to them, they're like, "Whoa!" He looks at him and he says, "Because I can always smell blood." Seraph reaches down and wraps his fingers around the metal gate and pulls and snaps it clean off the hinges, tosses it to the ground to the side. Ran can't help but ask. Is this wise? Are we sure? Seraph looks at him and says, No, but I'm going anyways. And he hops inside down, begins climbing down inside. The children, again, who all have, they're all armed, they have their things, are like, Okay, let's go see what this is. And they make their way down in the sewers after. And as they're traveling through the sewers, they have a couple little uh, encounters of their own. At one point they come across uh, twice they come across a group of rats that has at least two or three giant rats in it um, and are forced to fight through those. Uh, The rats are relatively savage and uh, Deacon had heard that there were giant rats in the sewer though he'd never actually seen one didn't know anyone who did Um, but there was a little bit of combat that went on there and they were able to take out the big rats no big issue uh, the smaller rats were actually more of a problem because they're faster. Uh, everybody got little bites on their feet, and they're all like, well, we're going to have to get that healed later because we don't need rat bites killing us. Because, you know, that would happen in these things. <laughs> so it was like a bloodhound. Yes. 
So they have several incidents. It takes them a little while to get through that. And of course, they're also going through just stink, right? Luckily, the way the sewer is built, there's almost like stone sides, almost like sidewalks. Rivers and stuff flow through it. Sometimes it's short. Sometimes they'll get to intersections that go left and right. And when they get to those situations, they got to figure out where they're going to go. It takes Sarah for a moment, but eventually he's like this way and just starts going and they follow him. They got to hop over the river and they're still getting, you know, nastiness on their shoes and the bottom of their robes and such, but they're not having to wade through anything. I want to clear that up right off the bat. As they make their way through, they're traveling for probably about 15, 20 minutes. Because it's slow going down here. And they have to stop frequently for Seraph to figure out which way to go. It's a, like it's a maze down here. And they Seraph stops them because he hears voices. He needs to get closer to hear what's being said. And he kind of motions them, I'm going to get closer. And Ran, of all people, waves. He goes, I'm coming too. He doesn't actually say it loud, but he gets it kind of thing. And he and Ran sneak up. Again, of all of them, Next to Seraph, Ran is the sneakiest. He's very quiet. And he doesn't have any weapons jingling because other than just a small dagger, he doesn't carry a lot of other weapons. He's trained in several, but he's more of a, you know, kung fu fighting kind of thing. So, as they get close, they can hear two men talking. And they sneak up enough that they can listen. And they hear the men talking about how quickly they want to be done with it all. So they can get out of this stinking kingdom. And of course they... Do you mean the stinking fire moon? Or stinking sewers? Because I mean, technically both of those would fit. And they sit here in the chat and say, Yeah, but this should... If this all goes through, at least we'll get out of here like... We'll get out of here and live like kings kind of a thing. Eventually one says, Ah, finally, there's the signal. Let's get the hell out of here. And you can hear them moving away. He waits a moment and then goes back to the other children and explains what they heard. And they're like, okay, all right, let's move. And they begin to make their way forward. When they get to the area that's very close to where they heard the men talking, Dandy quickly calls for them to stop. Not super loud, but enough that they can hear him. They all wait. And Dandy stops and looks around a little bit and she goes, yep, and points to a very well-hidden thin string that goes... Or, wire that goes across the floor. She'd found a trap. I'm not said Danny. I'm sorry, Petal, not Danny. Petal sees it. Oh, I said Danny. Petal sees it. Now, Petal is a mage. She's not a rogue. She does not know how to disarm this trap. She probably would have a small chance of it if she tried, just through, you know, hereditary. But her mom has shown her several of the different things what to look for for traps. You don't have to know how to disarm them if you can learn how to avoid them. Yes, I meant pedal. <laughs> Sorry, Ashley. <clears throat> I even wrote Dandy here for some reason, but it's supposed to be pedal. So seeing this, they're all like, she goes, ah, it's a trap kind of thing. we got to go over that. So Seraph carefully lifts everybody over, because Seraph can lift everybody over, except for Maeve, who's tall enough to step over it on her own. And as they move forward in this certain tunnel they're going down, it's much thinner, and they kind of have to walk in single file. So party order, and... I say party order because this is what the party order would be probably moving forward in most situations. Seraph at the front, followed by Deacon. After that is Petal, then Ran, then Artis, and Maeve in the back. So while Deacon is probably a bit more, he's going to be a better fighter than, than Maeve, 
Um, he's trained to fight with Seraph, having them side by side at the front. He also has some magic with him. And then right after him comes Petal, which is more magic. Ran and Maeve sandwich Artis. Because in almost every situation, both of them, instinct is going to be to protect Artis. Uh, because Maeve just feels like an older sister to her. And Maeve's natural strength, even if she just punches somebody, <laughs> pulls off a punch, she's going to do more damage than most anyone but Seraph would do anyways. So they continue to make their way down. And of course, as they're, as they're going, they can occasionally hear echoes of people talking, but it's hard to tell from exactly which direction. Again, as they get closer, they finally start to hear it, and Seraph sneaks up a little bit. Again, ahead this time with Ran, and they're looking in, and now they found a large chamber. And in this room, uh, it looks like there's broken crates and boxes. There's trash and stuff thrown around the corners and the edges of the room. But on the opposite side of the room, they see basically a, a small dock with a boat in it. And it looks like the, a river flows through there, which is the actual case. There's a river that flows through there. A river flows through there, and the boat looks like it's going to be leaving. Uh, again, on the ground and, and around the room, there are piles of trash, broken things. Maybe it looks like old pieces of weapons and armor and stuff. Things that have been thrown aside as non-valuable. Uh, uh, and even a couple of bodies in different states of decomposition mixed into the piles. So... From what their first count is, it looks like they can see eight rogues in this room. Because obviously at this point they assume they're rogues. They're crawling around the sewers. But on the small boat are a couple young women, all tied and gagged. And there are a couple more, several more, being led to the boat. Although they're kind of fighting back, including Dina. Seraph and Rand sneak back. Uh, to basically, you know, try to figure out what they're going to do. But when they return, they find their friends all standing there with several rogues with crossbows all pointed at them. Without much to do, much choice, they're marched into the chamber. There were three rogues all armed with crossbows small light crossbows, but still crossbows, and led inside. While that was going on, five more rogues had come in from another chamber. So I have to say that the chamber, when you're looking at it, across the way is the lake, the dock and the lake thing. And there's a chamber going left and, or a tunnel going left and right. So it's like a four-way intersection, but one end is a big river with a boat. And entering inside, and as they march in, clearly one of them is giving commands like he's in charge because he's in charge. Marched in there, all the rogues stop reaching for their weapons, seeing that they're being marched in at crossbow point. They all get a little smiles on their face, including the leader, who says, well, what do we have here? The bloody prince himself and his little group of friends. Little young to be playing hero now, aren't you, children? Deacon says, release them, you scoundrel. Because that's, you know, he, that's what he thinks he's supposed to say. McCain laughs, as does all the other, so all the other rogues. Scoundrel? I rather like the sound of that. Everybody laughs at his joke. He goes, 
He goes, but my name is McCain. My father will hear of this, Deacon says. And McCain gets serious and says, well, I reckon he will. But by then we'll be long gone. You see, boy, I've been running the Thieves Guild here for six years. And I don't mind telling you, we did pretty good for ourselves. Living well. You know, nodding and so on and so forth. Then a month or two ago, another group suddenly appears, starts muscling into our territory, taking things over. And I can tell you this, wherever they are, they're well-funded. Somebody's providing them with cash, because it didn't take long till most of, most of McGill was either dead or one of them. Says, uh, so yeah, I have, uh, yeah either, either, I've lost most of the people either joining them or ending up dead. And he looks at him and says, Now, I don't fancy, fancy either option, personally. Not really, not really the following type, I have to say. And I'm uh, quite fond of breathing. And again, the rogues laugh. And he's like, ha, 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 because he's the head rogue. So we're headed out tonight for greener pastures. Going to go ahead and leave this to them. No sense fighting over something I don't need. So we're going to uh, head on out. But I did make a deal with a certain baron to the south. Not one of Rafe's people. To provide him some, uh, I guess you could say, new friends. By the time the people here realize they're missing, we'll be well out of the kingdom. Now you can imagine that all of our little children heroes are very unhappy at this. They don't like this guy. They don't like what he represents. Definitely don't like what he's implying uh, is the future of the young women in the boat. But McCain continues. As for you and your friends, well, we've not much use for you boys or the cow, but the little girls will fetch us a good price. In his mind, Seraph can only say, I think not. Surprised by Seraph's speed, Seraph dashes across the room, managing to knock one of the rogues clean out of his rocker, knocks him clear down. The children as well all quickly grab their weapons and move as best as they can, and combat begins. Immediately, the children do well. A bit of a surprise. These are children. They really weren't being, whether they got weapons on them or not, they weren't being taken very seriously. Seraph, like I said, he moves so fast in his strength, he just cold cocks one of them and it just hits the ground. Ran as well does very quickly because, again, he doesn't have to draw a weapon. It only takes him a moment with a few well placed punches and kicks, and another rogue falls to the ground with the wind knocked out of him. Well, Deacon draws on another. Maeve, with all of her strength, hauls off and punches the closest bowman, breaking his jaw, making him stumble backwards as well. And Artis begins to cast a spell. Well, as soon as she does, one of the rogue yells, Beware the casters! Calling attention to the fact that there are, some of the children have some type of spell ability. And with that, all the rogues charge in. I said there were 13 of them in there. 
I said a few of them have already been taken down. That's still a lot. And these guys are the best that the Thief Lord has. He's the most loyal people and probably the ones that are going to have the best chance. These are no slouches. They know what they're doing as well. And this is the first time any of the children have ever had to fight in what you'd call close quarters. Right? So they start going... So basically combat begins. Um, immediately two of them, several of them I should say, several of them, run towards Artis and Dandy. Most of them are wielding clubs. Very few of them have swords. A couple of them probably have a sword and dagger and such. McCain definitely has a sword. But a lot of them have some form of club or something of that nature. Maybe a mace or a morning star. And they run in with clubs, immediately trying to take down Petal and Artis. Because they recognize them as casters. And even though they're kids, I don't know what they can cast. I don't need that kind of drama in my life as a rogue. So they go after the casters. Um, yes. Maeve intercepts several of them, standing in again to block them off. Petal manages to get off her spell, and a magic missile zips through the room, hitting another rogue square in the chest, causing him to fall to the ground. But then suddenly Rand goes down, struck hard by a club on his head. He hits the ground and is bleeding. Another one grabs Petal, and another grabs Artis and begins dragging them away from the others. Maeve tries to help, but immediately gets hit over the head as well with a club and begin and falls to her knees. She tries to get back up, but suddenly she's surrounded by rogues, three or four of them, who are all just consistently beating her with clubs. She's doing everything she can to try to block them as best as possible, but through the blood in her eyes, she sees Artis being gagged and sees her being tied up. She manages to force herself up, but before she can take a, an even step, another huge hit strikes her against the side of her head. And she goes crashing into the wall, landing in a pile of bodies, trash, and miscellaneous things. Her hand wraps around something, maybe a pipe. She tries to pull it and stand up, but again, she struck hard as several men kick her hard and she feels her ribs crack and becomes difficult to breathe. Seraph and Deacon are surrounded. While they're putting up a good showing, they're well outnumbered and they're losing. Laying there, Maeve can see Ran also on the ground and sees the, her two girls, Artis and Petal, fighting and kicking but their hands have already been bound and their mouths gagged so they can cast no spells. Maeve again tries to stand up, but she can't breathe. There's blood in her lungs. She prays for help. She prays to help her sister. And instead, wants to yell, Take me, but please let them live. And suddenly, Maeve can breathe again. The smell of stink is gone, and the sounds of battle are replaced with many conversations. Slowly, she rises. She no longer feels the pain in her bones and her joints. She finds herself in a large hall full of different warriors. 
She stands and sees them all, but they do not seem to see her or are paying her no attention. Warriors, men and women of different kinds and armors, different races. She begins to walk through the hall, drawn towards the large chair at the end. And through her tears, she knows who sits there. And as she reaches the large knight, she falls to her knees crying. Do not weep, child, says the god Zorn. Today is an important day. Through her tears, she cannot look up and face him. But she says, I do not weep for myself, my lord. It is an honor to be here before you, though I fear I do not deserve it. But if I am here, then it means I am dead. And if I am dead, then I cannot help my sisters, my friends, from death or even worse. Zorn looks down at the crying young minotaur child before him and says, My brave daughter, you stand in the hall of truth, a place millions of souls would give anything to enter, and still you question. You question your worth, and you question my judgment. Maeve looks up and apologizes. I am sorry, my lord. I meant not to disappoint you. The large warrior smiles. Disappoint? Nay, my daughter, I am quite proud of you. It is a strength few have, the ability to always seek the truth in all you do. It is why you were chosen. But fear not, my child. You have not yet died. You still live, though time is very short. The great god stands, the reflecting metal of his plate mail, his helm. If you're wondering what he looks like, there are figures on OnlyDraven.com under the character section showing what all the gods and all the characters look like in mini form. If you're listening to this uh, anywhere, that'd be a place to go see who I'm talking about. <laughs> the god stands, plate metal reflecting from all the torches, and he begins walking down the stairs towards her. And as he does, his size begins to shrink some, and he gets a bit smaller. And by the time he reaches her, he's only ten feet tall. He was like twenty-five feet tall when he was sitting on the big throne. He looks down at her and helps her up. He says, there is a great darkness rising that threatens the lives and fates of millions. This darkness, this darkness threatens to block out the light and bury the truth in a sea of lies and deceit. In the coming days, events will transpire that will threaten everything we hold dear. And this is why I have chosen Artis. She will be my voice, pushing back against the darkness and the lies. As my cleric, she will be a beacon of truth. Then he gets down on one knee, He's looking eye to eye with Artis. But the path of a cleric is not for you, my child. 
Maeve nodded slowly and sadly. In her heart, she'd known the path was wrong for her. She felt a love and desire for truth and knowledge just like artists, yet she felt always so out of place. The great god nods, agreeing with her thoughts. Yes, my daughter, exactly. Then he looks into her eyes, and she starts to feel a power and a strength she's never felt before. And while artists shall be my voice, you, Maeve, you shall be my fist. With hammer and blade you shall bring the justice of truth on those who would hide it. You will be my strength in the battle ahead, a battle for fate itself. You shall be my fist. As he spoke, he began to glow with a powerful light, and looking down, she saw the same light around herself. But will you accept this, my child? Will you accept the power, the strength, and the responsibilities that come with it? There will be great danger, and there will be great loss. Maeve, now crying, but in happiness, managed to say, yes, my lord, I will fight. I'll fight the darkness, and I will protect the light. And Zorn smiles. Reaching down, he draws his huge sword, wrapping his hands around the blade, offers her it to her hilt first. Then take this sword, my child, and pull. Maeve wraps her hands around the sword and begins to pull, but it doesn't move. Harder, Maeve. She tries harder and harder, yet the blade still does not move. Feel the strength that I'm giving you. Use it with your own. Maeve pulls and pulls. Her muscles scream and her body wants to quit, yet she pulls harder and harder. Maeve felt the strength flow through her, and with everything she had, she pulled, and the sword slowly began to move. The god smiled down and nodded. Maeve screamed in anger and pain, and the sword drew from his hands. With a final pull, the sword came free, and Maeve was on her feet. Gone was the glowing hall and her great lord. Once again she stood in the filthy sewers of Firemoon. Her rise and scream had halted the battle but a moment, but it resumed. A rogue rushed in, swinging with his club. Maeve's arm shot out, grabbing his wrist, keeping him from fulfilling his swing. He was strong, but she was stronger. He reached at her with his other hand, but Maeve swung the sword in her hand. The blade she'd grabbed was old, but well-made, incredibly large, designed to be used with two hands. One-third of the blade was broken, but it still kept a sharp edge. As she swung it, it caught the man underneath of his arm, and with her strength it continued through, cutting cleanly through, coming out the shoulder and neck the other side, having cleaved the man in two. Maeve stood there, glowing in the darkness. McCain saw this and knew something had happened, something that had changed the status quo of this battle. Emboldened Seraphim Deacon fought harder, 
and surprisingly Ran too had regained his feet and attacked another rogue. The battle ensued, and quickly the tide of battle turned. McCain commanded all his minions to attack, even the ones on the boat, while he stayed back and watched. Maeve began to cut her way through them. While never fully trained with a sword, she knew enough to put it to good use. Realizing she was doing as much damage, some of the rogues turned and began to flee down the different tunnels. But by then, McCain was already gone. What few who stayed were cut down within a few moments, until only the young heroes stood there. Ran quickly rushed over and untied Artis, and then Petal, both the young women running towards Maeve. Now that the fight was over, the glow had faded, and the busted sword fell from her hand. She again was having difficulty breathing. Artis prepared to cast the only small healing spell she had, but Maeve stopped her with a gesture. Maeve placed her own hand on her own chest and concentrated. Again, her hand glowed and she could feel her broken ribs pop back into place. When she finished, she could breathe again. She was far from healed and bled from many wounds, but she would live. Seraph and Deacon untied and freed the women on the boat. Freeing Dina, she broke into tears, wrapping her arms around him. Gently, he picked her up and carried her back to the land. As they checked everyone for injuries, Rand did a quick search and found another way to the surface, not far down one of the tunnels. Artis saw the blood, then noticed the blood on Rand's face. He had a huge cut on the side of his head, and it blood flowed freely. Against his protest, she used her healing spell to mend the deep cut. He wanted it to use it on somebody else instead, maybe even herself. But she's like, nope, you're getting this spell. Checking to make sure everyone was well enough to travel, they decided they needed to get out of there as quickly as they could before the rogues potentially came back with more, or worse. They made their way to the entrance that Rand had found. There was a ladder leading up to what looked to be a large metal manhole cover. Deacon went up first and tried to push. Coming back down said, it was too heavy, there's no way he could move it. Seraph placed Dina down and told them to wait. She seemed hesitant, but he climbed up. To the folks on the street who were dancing and still celebrating in the evening, the nice shining moon above, it came quite as a surprise when a large metal manhole cover exploded from the ground, flying through the air and making a very loud, heavy clang a short distance away. They were even more shocked when the crown prince, covered in blood and filth, began to climb out. Immediately there was a call for guards and several ran forward and began helping the prince and the others out of the hole. Others ran for the keep. By the time the king arrived ten minutes later with Tabork, Thickaway, and Smalzius, Rohan and several other clerics had already arrived from the temple and begun healing those who were injured. Going to his son, who's again covered in blood and filth, begins checking him for wounds. Rohan, who was taking care of one of the girls who'd been injured, mentioned that he'd be okay. He'd already seen to him. Regardless of the stink, Rafe embraced his son and asked him what had happened. Rafe told the story as quickly as he could, 
or not Rafe, sorry, Deacon told the story as quickly as he could. Even starting with the part where they'd met Dina a couple of days before, and when going to check on her, found that she'd been taken, and so on and so forth. He could see that his father was not happy that he'd gone in there himself, but he continued to listen, not interrupting the boy. He told the whole story of the rogues, how they were going to kill him and Seraph and Ran and Maeve, and then take the other girls for worse, from some baron to the south, all the info he could give. While this was going on, hearing part, as soon as the first part of the story came out, Taborik immediately started sending for more guards, getting an armored force. They were going to go down in there and find any survivors. It was a giant maze under the city. It would take time to get enough people to search them all. Thickaway and Smallsius stepped up to, stepped up to Rafe. We're going to go down first. King nodded, Thickaway, and Smallsius made their way towards the manhole cover the children had just come out of. Smallsius, said Rafe. Smallsius and Thickaway stopped and turned back to look at their friend, their king. They were going to kill my son, Smallsius. Smallsius nods and it will be the last mistake they ever make. Rafe nodded, and quickly Smallsies and Thickaway went down the hole. Once everyone was healed and taken care of enough that they could in, guards were sent to fetch the families of the girls or take the girls home, the ones that had been taken. Some brought, came to take Dina home, but Dina was very, very uncomfortable and did not seem to want to let go of Seraph. Seraph asked if he may escort her home. Rafe said, of course, but several of the guards are going to escort you. Till we know where the rest of these rogues have ended up, everyone will stay protected. They nodded, and he escorted her home. The rest were taken care of as well. Now, Rohan was seen to Maeve's injuries. And once he saw that what few injuries she had were not life-threatening, he stopped and looked at her and he smiled. Looking back, she smiled as well. I see his aura all around you, he said. Maeve nodded. It seems you found your path after all, little daughter said to Bork nearby and smiling he went and gathered several more warriors to begin the search of the sewers Seraph and the warriors with her did not take Deegan and Rafe was keeping Deacon nearby for the near little while this is twice in less than two weeks that their children have found themselves in a situation fighting for their lives. And he definitely did not want this to become a pattern. Seraph escorted Dina home. Getting her there, grandparents came out, obviously seeing clothing slightly ripped and so on and so forth, and seeing the city guards came out and asked what happened. Dina explained that she'd been taken by rogues only to be with the intention of being sold away. And grandparents were like, <gasps> You know, you grow from a grandma. Oh, my Lord. It says, Seraph and the Prince Deacon came to our rescue, saved us. The grandparents 
overwhelmingly pleased. The uncle had come out at this point as well. He was a big dude, too. Really muscular. Big old beard and mustache. He comes in, and he, they all thank Seraph very much. And he promises to give their thanks to Deacon as well. And he tells her, you know, he says that uh, he will come by and check on her tomorrow if that's okay. And Dina, Dina nods. Then she gives him like a big old hug and thanks him. She, and her grandparents usher her inside. And her grandfather says, she means the world to us. I can't tell you how much we appreciate you. Seraph bows low as he was taught, and turning, returns to go back to his friends. There's a knock on Artemis's door. It's awfully late. She makes her way over. Draven was gone for the for a couple days, visiting Tevin, checking make sure everything was okay up at the home. Still concerned that there might be a man in a hat and some undead wandering around. Check to make sure Tevin was home okay. Artemis opens the door and was surprised. But she opened the door and let Quentin in. I heard you'd returned home today. Welcome back, my friend. Thank you, my lady. I apologize for bothering you so late in the evening, but... I need to talk to you. Of course, of course, please, come in and have a seat, said Artemis. Quentin came and sat down. He seemed at odds, difficulty, getting out what he wants to say. But Artemis sat there quietly, giving him the time he needed to put his thoughts in order. I have been given a vision, he said finally. Artemis thought, ah, not a common occurrence at all. And can you share with me what you saw? Artemis asks. He nods. So, I saw darkness. Somewhere deep, filth surrounded me. I felt pain, and I felt sadness, and I felt sorrow. I was giving my prayers the evening as I always do, when the vision struck me as such. And then... There was a light, blinding light, and I felt whole again. I felt protected. I felt powerful. You know, years ago, I was given the greatest blessing any man could ever ask for. I was gifted, and along with mercy, I was given the pleasure to see my Lord Zorn. He told us we had much to do to fight at the tower that day, to defeat the Emperor of Ormon. We would be needed. He encouraged us. But he told us we were not to die that day. And the words he said ever since have weighed on me heavily, so I've not known what they meant. For a seeker of truth, you can imagine how frustrating that could be. Artemis nods, understanding. He said, it is not yet your day to die. You both have much to do. And you both have much to teach. And Quentin smiles. He stands up. He'd only been there a couple moments. He goes, I felt I needed to share that. And I th allow you, thank you 
for allowing me to bother you so late this evening. Artemis stood too, of course. You're always welcome, Quentin. Nodding good evening and turning, the paladin made his way towards the door. But as he reached it, he stopped and turned back towards Artemis. When she comes to you, and when she asks, the answer is yes. Send her to me. There's much to teach her, and I fear time is very short. Good evening, my lady. And Quentin left the room. Now, whoever could he be speaking of, thought Artemis. And that's where we're going to stop for today. So, I'm hoping that you all are enjoying um, the children in the story and getting to tell a bit of them. Um, as we move forward in the story, there are times when the story will be about them. There will be times when the story is about our classic heroes, and sometimes it may be a mixture of both. Um, but the children are definitely going to be moving forward uh, as more fleshed out characters um, as this goes on. So I'm hoping you're enjoying the uh, inclusion of some new characters. Um, over the last couple of weeks, I've tried to, you know, hopefully people came to care about them as well. Um, and it was exciting because I mentioned in the past that when we created the children, I did not create their character classes. The uh, young ladies who played the characters did. And Maeve was rolled to be a paladin. And I always knew I wanted her to get there from somewhere else. As soon as I found out, she, I thought that was an awesome idea. Minotaur Paladin of Truth. Didn't have one already. So having the option to get her there, I wanted that to be a journey. I wanted her to to just not, hey, I'm a paladin. I wanted her to, to go through steps and things to find her way. Um, and she has now taken the first step on what is her path. And Seraph has stepped on his. But, that said, I am going to call it a day. <laughs> Thank you all for coming by and letting me tell my story again. Uh, if you're listening to this on iTunes or Spotify uh, down the road, I appreciate it. Um, if you would mind, give it a like or a follow or a subscription or a, you know, a, a rating, whatever it is that they do on Spotify and iTunes, it would help. If you're watching here on YouTube, please remember to give it a like and subscribe to the channel if you haven't before, so that way you can see uh, all new stuff. Over the next few days, I will be releasing pictures and such of what the children look like as minis on the website. So uh, I will probably have those for next Thursday. I'll introduce them next week. Um, but I'm excited to see uh, how you guys feel about that. So any feedback you have, jump into the Discord. we got a merge ones there. Message me directly if you prefer. Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what you heard today. Uh, let me see here. It makes a lot of sense. The God of Truth would want his followers to seek their own truth after all. Very much so. Very much so. So I was thank you for sharing that. You're very welcome, Mystique. I'm glad you were able to stay for the whole thing. Um, but I appreciate you. Thank you so much again. I only get to do this because you guys listen. So 
I appreciate you giving me the opportunity. I'm really enjoying providing coming out with this new content. Um, I w did want to say, just as a future warning, um, a lot of episodes are going to start probably leaning more towards the two-hour mark instead of the two-and-a-half-hour mark. Today, I had a lot I wanted to get through, so we did. Um, but some of the podcasts do run a bit long, and I've had to break them into two parts occasionally. Um, and then sometimes if I do need to run long, I'd like to have that buffer. So uh, I'm going to be aiming for a little bit more around a two-hour mark uh, moving forward so that maybe at the end of it I have a few minutes more to take questions and, and chat with you folks. But, uh, yeah. I'm excited to see where the story goes uh, and I mean, what you guys think of where the story is going to go. Hopefully there's been some surprises at least once or twice over the last few episodes. <laughs> All right, everybody. Thank you very much for hanging out with me. As always, very special thank you to the members of here as well as the subscribers on Twitch. Thank you so much for your support. I appreciate it. Extra special thank you to my moderators for all the hard work they do keeping my booty in line. All right? You folks have yourselves a wonderful night, and I will see you again next Thursday for a little bit more Merged Worlds. Have a great day. <laughs>